Stuff podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff, and this week we are very sad. Yes, for at least we're sad for different reasons than we have been a lot on this podcast. I feel like, yeah, recently we have some cool stuff to talk about today. Yeah, um, you know, we're going to talk about some different. We're basically this is going to be a catch-all episode. We're going to talk about some stuff. We're going to talk about some news. We're going to do a little Nintendo chat, and at the end we might do a little my mini Wii U retrospective, which I've wanted to do before the Switch comes out because I feel like I should just try to sum up these four years of the Wii U. Yeah. If that's possible. <laughs> it's been a weird road. But yeah. our main news topic today is sad, and that is Peter Capaldi is leaving Doctor Who. Yeah, he, he officially announced that, that season 10 is going to be his last season, and he'll be leaving at the next Christmas special. Yeah, so his fourth Christmas special, end of this year, will be his last one. That'll also be Stephen Moffat's last episode. So a lot of lasts riding on that. Yeah, it's, it's another big sort of reset for Doctor Who mm-hmm. for season 11. And I think we both have very complex emotions about this. Yeah. Um, my primary one, though, is sadness. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it, feels like, it feels like he just got here. I know. You know? And, and even, it, even more so than it has in the past on Doctor Who, I feel. Yeah, and, and so we're going to break down a lot of that. I, I will just say, I remember that when that was announced, that was the same day as a lot of the uh, travel ban stuff was going down. We had just recorded and we weren't able to talk about it. Um, I was also having a very bad day at work and some other stuff. And that just... I felt like the world was kicking me in the nuts that day. Yeah. Like my car, the power steering went out. My new car and I had to go get it. Like all this stuff. And then Peter... And I was like, you were the one thing I was looking forward to, Peter Capaldi, was I'm, you yeah. continuing to be the doctor. It's, it's the thing that I've had to keep on telling myself is that we still have like a whole season of right. his Doctor Who left, you know? Yeah. So it's, and, you know... A new Doctor is exciting, even yeah. if one is leaving, and you got to remind yourself of that too. But it is—it's just like it was just—it came on a bad day already, and I was like, "Fuck! I hate the world right now. I yeah. just hate the world." <laughs> and I love Peter Capaldi. I can't wait to see what he does, does next. I'm sure he had good reasons. Blah blah blah. But it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we'll get into all of that. Let's talk some stuff. A brief update on something we talked about last week. We did a sort of spoiler-free impressions episode on Gravity Rush 2. Yes. I am still plugging away at that game. That is a long fucking game. It, yes, it is long. I I think I mentioned this on the last podcast that it sort of feels like Gravity Rush 2 and 3 put together. Yes, it does. And now you you are more than far enough into that game to know what I mean when I say that. It, it does. It does feel like two Gravity Rush sequels you got for the price of one. And I have mixed feelings about that, honestly. Uh, the game is long, and it frankly to me feels longer, and I have some problems with the second half of the game, which, just for those who haven't played it, uh, Chapter 2 and Chapter 3, which are kind of the two big pillars of the game, Yeah, uh, I definitely liked Chapter 2 more. Chapter 3 is good and has a lot of good stuff. It feels sluggish, and some of the side quests I don't like, and there's some stuff in there. I'm still enjoying it. It's a game that... Yeah, I, I'm kind of excited to be done with just because it's long. But I'm enjoying a lot of it. It goes for some things near the end of Chapter 3. Yeah. And I assume in whatever's to come. Yes, yeah. No, the, the boss fight at the end of Chapter 3 is insane. It, it, it goes, uh, yeah, it goes, it goes full 
anime. <laughs> it's, it's it's where you remember that the guy who's the director on the Gravity Rush series used to be the guy who's the director on the Silent Hill series. Okay, that makes it's sense. It's like, it makes a little bit more sense where that fucking boss fight goes. Where you're like, oh, right, yeah, he used to work on horror games. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if I were to say any, any more critical things about the game, one thing I've noticed in the structure of the game design that I don't like in Gravity Rush 2... Um, that becomes more apparent in the second half, is an awful lot of quests and side quests rely on you do an activity, and it's kind of interesting. It's often, you know, breaking whatever the main mechanics of the game are. You do something else with it. But then that side quest makes you do it three more times with increasing difficulty. And a lot of it does feel, at a certain point, like it's artificially extending the length of the game. And I didn't like some of that. And it also comes up in the second half... Remember in Halo 5 when there's that one boss you fight five times? Yes. There's kind of one of those in Gravity Rush 2, and it annoys me a little bit. How many times you fight Redacted okay. in Gravity Rush 2. Okay, yeah, yeah. And it builds to something cool. Yeah. But yeah, I guess do... I didn't have a problem with it because it feels like it is more justified why you're fighting that character multiple times than, than something like Halo 5. It's just not... It's, just, it's the same thing I have with Halo 5, though. It's just not different enough between the ones. And I don't know if Gravity Rush... Frankly, its fight mechanics are deep enough to to support the number of boss fights it goes to in the second half. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff I liked. There's there's a very cool um, sequence near the end of chapter three where you're going through this like glass dome kind of world. Yeah, and that's like oh, I want more of that. That looked cool. So yeah. Anyway, I you know, and there's some fun stuff. I there was I just did a there's two side missions in particular I love from the second half of the game. One is where the game just decides to become a detective visual novel yeah, for that's a good one. half an hour, and that one is fascinating, and I basically want a Gravity Rush spinoff where Cat just becomes a detective, mm-hmm. because that was a lot of fun. And then one where you have to stop this little boy's dad from drinking and try to break his alcoholism. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. That was, Ozzy, and, no. and that is definitely one of those that I think suffers a tiny bit from the do the same thing three times with increasing yeah. difficulty, but it's, it's like that one is self-aware of it in a way that justifies it to me, and it is funny. And just that's a topic that I can't imagine an American game doing anything with. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, and it's it's just it's so Japanese. It is such that cultural Japanese view of alcoholism, mm-hmm. and it is hilarious. So Gravity Rush Two is still a good game. I have some issues with it, but it's good. It's I would honestly at this point compare Gravity Rush One and Two to The Godfather Part One and Two. Okay. In that sure. Godfather One is like the streamlined. I mean, it's a long movie, but it's relatively streamlined. It kind of introduces you to this world, all that stuff. And then The Godfather 2 is giant, and it has multiple time periods, and it's really long. And, you know, it's, it's got different tonal shifts to it and stuff. And I think there's going to be, you know, eternally a debate, which one do you like more of Godfather 1 and 2? And I kind of feel like that with Gravity Rush 1 and 2, where I respect a lot of Gravity Rush 2 and how big and ambitious it gets. Part of me likes the simplicity of Gravity Rush 1 more. But that's not to negate that they're both really interesting and utterly unique games. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I'm excited for you to, to finish that game. Because you're, you're close where you are. Yeah. And I just I want to talk about the, the game as a whole. Right. Finally. I'm, I'm excited to finish it, too, because I have other games I want to play. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, I got in a game from Amazon this week, Digimon World Next Order. And I'm excited to try it out. Play some yeah. more Digimon. If nothing else, that game has fucking amazing cover art. And if you haven't seen it, you should yes, go. Yeah. It's just, it kind of like Cyber Sleuth. It's, you know, a hand-drawn anime thing. And it's just, it's gorgeous and it makes me want to play that game. Very rarely these days does cover art make me just like, I want to play this. That is a game. I, I still don't know anything about that game. Other it, than has, it has Digimon in it. Yeah. It, it, is, it is, I think, it, I saw a trailer for it and it looks like it has like a real-time combat stuff instead of turn-based. Yes, and it's also like AI-driven, so it's, it's a very different game than Cyber Sleuth, but I'm excited to give it a try, at least. Um, so yeah, 
uh, hopefully I'm done with Gravity Rush 2 by next week. I, I think I will be. Yeah, so you, know, you definitely will be. Yeah. yeah so. you, you, you have, there's like, because I guess we could just say that like the game has a weird structure whereby it has two really huge chapters, like a prologue, two really huge chapters, and then like at the end of chapter two, or slash chapter three, because they number it weird, the, it basically it rolls credits, like Metal Gear Solid Five rolls credits halfway through that game. But then Gravity Two has an epilogue, but that epilogue it's like three hours or something. Like it's not crazy, but it, it is it is a you know it is a capper on that story. It is it rolls credits abruptly. Yes, like, it does. Yeah, it, you you basically finish a fight. You feel like there has got to be a lot more story left, and then it's running credits. And at least like there's story going on in those credits, so you kind of just ignore the credits because it does not feel like they should be running right yeah. now. And then some cool stuff happens. But yeah, it's uh it, it made me laugh that the credits run there. Yeah, definitely, that is a Hideo Kojima thing to do. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, it would, the only thing more Hideo Kojima would be at the end of every episode. It like says written and directed by well, yeah. whoever the director of Gravity Rush is, but they don't yeah. do that. Thankfully, no. yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that's Gravity Rush Two. Uh, it's a game. What have you been playing? I have I have also been playing a game. I have been playing two games actually. But then the first one that I've been putting a lot of time into is Yakuza Zero. Which is a game I was hoping to have been able to talk a little bit on the podcast last week because it was host- supposed to get here last Friday and then it got here this Tuesday. So I haven't gotten to put quite as much time into it as I would have liked. But I still I put like twenty hours or something into this game, and it is it is really fucking good. Like I I've never played any of the Yakuza games before, and I was never even really particularly aware of them, even though they have all of the mainline Yakuza games have come out in the West in, like, different states. I think only the first one was actually, uh, like, dubbed and everything and looking at it. Like, I I was doing some research on it the other day because I was just curious about how this series has sort of come over here because it feels like Yakuza 0, which is a prequel to the original Yakuza, is the first one of these games to, like, really get sort of more widespread acclaim, even though it's not, like, setting the world on fire necessarily. I feel like the gaming sort of criticism community has suddenly like flocked to this series all of a sudden. You will see it on major gaming websites being discussed, which you might not have for like Yakuza 5 or Yeah, something. exactly. Yeah, because Yakuza 6 is coming out next year and a remake of Yakuza 1 called Yakuza Kiwami is coming out later this year and I'm, I'm excited now to start playing those games if I'm finished with fucking Yakuza 0 by then because it seems like it's going to be long. But anyways, but Yakuza 1, the original Yakuza 1 had like a full celebrity voice cast and stuff and it's weird to think about, like, they really tried to push that this, this series over here in the West by having a celebrity voice cast, and then immediately they're like, nope, like, we're not doing that ever again, because these games have a shit ton of voice acting if Yakuza 0 is any indicator, and so they have been sort of, like, slowly trickling over here, usually, like, a year or two late behind the, the uh, Japanese release, and the, so finally Yakuza 0's got over here, the... the critical community has sort of flocked to it and gotten enough attention and there have been enough people saying that like Yakuza is a lot like Shinmu, which it kind of is. It's not as much like Shinmu as I thought it was going to be, which is not a bad thing necessarily, but but there is some sort of like DNA because both of the series are made by Sega. So I decided to jump in with Yakuza 0 because everyone was also saying that since it's a prequel, you can just go in and on this one and not have to worry about a bunch of story stuff that obviously a series this old has built up. And I have to say, like, everything I have read about how good this game is is absolutely true. It is so unique. There's no game like it on the market I've ever played. Even something that has some similarities like a Shinmu or 
you know, like vaguely like Grand Theft Auto, even Yakuza is open world, but it does, it's not like huge open world, but some of like the stuff of the cutscenes and, and, and stuff feels similar to how Grand Theft Auto handles that. But Yakuza definitely has a really fascinating, unique sense of itself and its tone and that it is able to vacillate wildly from like main story stuff where you're seeing, you know, people being murdered in like this like intense Yakuza melodrama and cutscenes that can go for like 20 minutes and stuff like that. And then you can go to doing side quests on the street just given to you by random people that is some of the goofiest thing I have, the stuff I have ever seen in any video game I've ever played. It's Yakuza can make you, I mean, quite literally, it can make you tear up, and then like five minutes later, you're just laughing your ass off because you're doing a, running a side quest for a woman who is desperately trying to tell you that she needs a visa, but because her jab, she's foreign and she has, she can't pronounce Japanese properly, you keep on, Kiryu, your main character, keeps on hearing it as pizza, so you go, and you go get her a pizza, while she's like, no, I need a visa, but he keeps on hearing pizza, so he goes and orders a fucking pizza, and it's this insane side quest that, like, ends with, it's all product placement for Pizzala, which is a pizza place in Japan. It's... That's brilliant. It is, it is so brilliant, it's so funny, and it's so dark and serious, and it's... If, if like, you, Jonathan, I know, and, and for myself, you really like Yakuza movies... There's this game you need to play it because it has some of that like perfect f melodrama of like the opening of the game. It, within the first like ten minutes, there are people threatening to like oh like threatening people to say like oh you're going to have to cut off your pinky to like you know make amends for this mistake you have made. There's a like a yakuza boss that is in jail who's doing time who's like falling for someone that's like that you're waiting for him to come back and there's all this infighting between different lieutenants that are all working for like the Dojima family but they have their smaller families working under them that they're trying to sort of vie for position of being like a captain so to be Dojima's right hand man and then like in the, the distance there's the Tojo clan that's above them all that's sort of like really organizing things but you I haven't even gotten to a point where I've seen anyone who's a direct part of the, the Tojo hierarchy and that I'm still working on the Dojima stuff and it's like it's all those sort of like basic structural things you expect from a plot in a Yakuza movie and they throw it at you right away and it just it feels so I felt so at home in this game immediately with all the stuff I was seeing and the dialogue and the, the vocal performances are fantastic and all the dialogue is exactly yeah. the kind of shit you want Yakuza dudes to be like yelling at each other intensely in a room when shit goes down. There really is no pure better form of Japanese acting than Yakuza yelling at each other. Exactly, yeah. It's it's and there's there's just the chapter one of this game is such a fucking perfect way to try to introduce someone to the, the strange tone that this game has because again like it does the intense like macho melodrama stuff that you expect of Yakuza movies and it can also be incredibly silly and so like the first chapter of this game you go from like hanging out with your buddy and going to a uh, karaoke bar and seeing yep. karaoke and all of the mini games in, in Yakuza are incredible because they, they go for them like 110% like when you are doing karaoke and it's, you're doing this whole rhythm game thing and if you're doing well at a certain point in the song it just like because Kiryu is just up there singing his fucking ass off and he's actually singing a song that's like I've as far as I can determine has been like custom made for this game and then when you get far enough into the song it just shifts into this like alternate reality music video world where all of a 
sudden it's like him and his two buddies standing on a stage with like rocker gear because it's a rock song they're singing and it's like all these like cuts and stuff. And there's another song you can sing at the karaoke bar that when you get deep enough into it, it just shifts into music video world because it's a sad song of Kiryu at the bar with a drink, like, singing to himself and, like, remembering his childhood at where he grew up in this orphanage run by a Yakuza dude. It's like... So the mini games are incredible because they go for them 110%. So you're seeing karaoke and it's fucking hilarious. And then chapter one ends with one of the most elaborate and incredible just sort of, like, cinematic... Like like cinematic mixed with gameplay action sequences I've seen in the game where Kiryu, because this is all the beginning stuff so it's not a spoiler, Kiryu has to sort of, to, to try to sort of solve some issues that are going down and sort of, sort of clear his name because he's being framed for a murder, he decides that the only path he has is to try to leave the family. Because, like, if he's stuck in the Yakuza, he can't really act in the way he needs to act. And so when he goes to try to leave, he ends up having to basically fight off all these henchmen of one of the lieutenants for the Dojima family. And so you're just, like, mowing through dudes, just beating the shit out of people, climbing up this tower to try to get to the top where the lieutenant is and have a boss fight with him. And it's so incredible the way that, like, it just propels you forward. And, if, like, to the point where you're, you start just, like, beating up people in a little office... And then at some point, you're, like, drop-kicking a dude through a bathroom window out of the fifth floor. So hard that, like, he drop-kicks him through the window. And Kiryu goes through the window with him and has to grab onto the edge at the last second or he's going to fall all the way out. It's it's so fucking good. It's hard for me to sort of explain how amazing this game is in some places. Because it's... It just... Whatever it does, it goes for it 110%. It is like the Unarkami of video games. Like, it's whatever mode it is in, it, it will do everything it needs to make that as extreme and incredible as it needs to be. Whether that's the melodrama, the action, the mini, game, the mini games, the, the weird comedy, and the sub-stories. It just fucking goes for it constantly. And it's so endearing. And it's it's like it's a game that I just can't put down when I start playing it. I just have to like keep going on whatever I'm doing, whether it is just like doing the fucking disco mini game that is so incredible, or it's what I'm doing right now is I've opened up this whole real estate business thing where I'm going around and like buying up territory of the, around the city and sort of getting the the income from their places. And the more territory you get, the the person who owns that area. Who's like a big? They call them the one of the the five billionaires that owns the different sections of Kamurocho. You have like different showdowns with them. Like I just had a karaoke showdown with one of them, where he just basically said, "If we're going to do a karaoke thing, and if I get more points than you, then I get ten percent of your thing. Or if you get more points than me, you get ten percent of my thing." And I kicked his ass at karaoke, and it felt real good. That that this sounds like a game I would enjoy. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic. While you were talking about it, I went ahead and uh, put it on my list for for the year of things to play. Yeah, it's out of stock on Amazon right now, which is an amazing thing. Yeah, it is. I, we've talked about this before. How amazing it is because I'm looking at like the special edition box you got of this uh-huh. game, and it's like this just didn't happen in the last generation where games yeah. like this got. They might get released over here, but they didn't get these kind of releases. And it's a testament to how well the PS4 is doing and how. Just on what solid footing the industry is in that zone right now. Yeah. That you can get this stuff over here so easily and with such wide acclaim and and marketing. Yeah. Because it's something where, again, even though this series has clearly been the perfect series for me the whole time. Because the basics of what this series is has been like that for a long time. Like, I've just never 
noticed it because it's never been out there in a big way. Like I only ever heard about it. It's like, oh, it's like a weird open worldy kind of like game from Japan. But it's like I never really thought about like, oh, this game might be perfect for me, you know? Yeah. And and it totally is. I, w- I want to. Play. I will try to play this before the end of the year. I have no idea when I will because March and April are are totally blocked off. Yeah, maybe after that. Yeah, because if you think Gravity Rush Two is a long game, dude, like I'm, I'm over. I'm probably like 25 hours in, and I'm on chapter five. And I was looking at the trophies, and I think there are 20 chapters in this game. Nice. <laughs> like, and I maybe you go through some of those real fast, but like basically, I spent about as much time on every chapter as every other chapter. So I'm sort of terrified by how long this game is. That does sound long. This is definitely shaping up to be a year of obscenely long games. Yeah, but but if I will take however long Yakuza Zero wants to take to get where it wants to go, because holy fucking shit, some of the stuff in this game is so amazing. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. All right, what else you been playing? I, I have also been playing uh, Fire Emblem Heroes, which is the newly released mobile game from Nintendo to follow up on their Super Mario Run stuff. And and so, John, we were talking a little bit before. You haven't really played it at all, right? No, and despite my well-known Fire Emblem fandom, um, I actually did not know until the day it came out that it was coming out on iOS. Yeah. That was a surprise to me. I yeah, it, it just was... sort of, like, happened because when they originally announced it, it said, like, iOS will come out sometime. Yeah, so I wasn't, like, I did not, I had not blocked off time for it, frankly, and I have watched, like, the opening movie and looked at it a little bit, but I have not had time to actually sit down and play it because it seems like at least at first... I couldn't. I would want to like actually sit down and figure it out before I like started playing it casually, mobily, yeah, or something. So yeah, yeah. So it's I'm having fun with it, and it's something where I kind of have conflicted feelings about it in the exact same way that I have conflicted feelings about all of these kinds of games because it's called what's called a gotcha game for people who are not familiar with it. It's basically a whole genre that's really popular in Asia, in particular on mobile devices. Where, like, whatever, like, you know, tactical strategy thing like Fire Emblem or, you know, something more basic in terms of, like, the core gameplay. The, what these games are really about is sort of getting, like, collecting these heroes or whatever they are and sort of leveling them up. And it's all about, like, you know, you will get, like, a certain amount of stamina and it's going out on different quests and each one takes up your stamina. And then, like, oh, well, if you run out of stamina, you can, you know, spend one of your premium currency to get it that you can either get by doing things in the game that at some point in the game you're going to get to a point where it's very hard to get that premium currency for free or you can drop some money to get it and fill up your stamina and go out on more missions to sort of, like, you know, either get premium currency early on or eventually you'll be playing the game to try to get stuff that'll help you level up your characters or, like, you can... or combine your characters in different ways and give them different skills. And there, it's a genre of games that is, like, really heavily built on, like, front-loading you with a lot of, like, very easy stuff that you can get into. And then the more time you spend on the game, the deeper and deeper and deeper it goes into, like, a really harsh, steep grind... That, that slowly is supposed to wind you down to get you to start buying stuff. And they're really built around getting, like, some, like, just a handful of players that are called in the business whales that are going to spend an obscene amount of money on these games. Because no matter how much money you spend, there will always be something more you need to spend money on. So that's kind of how these games are built. And they you can have fun with them without spending money on them. But it is something where, and, and I've just basically hit this point with Fire Emblem Heroes, where I've almost finished the like quote-unquote story mode there's not really much of a story to it at all like the story is 
hey, this you were summoned to this world where we're we're breaking we're going to all the different worlds from the Fire Emblem games or like five of the worlds from the Fire Emblem games and fighting with all these heroes and so you fight with the, the Fire Emblem characters and then eventually if you get enough premium currency you can get some Fire Emblem characters to fight the other Fire Emblem characters and there's not really much of a story but I basically got to the end of that progression like the last last story mode mission thing is really really hard and so I need to level up my guys if I actually want to finish that not if there's like some big reward for finishing it but it is like I feel like getting to that point I am have just sort of breached the edge of the game where it's like oh you see it you see where it's like there's not really an easy way for me to get any more premium currency for free anymore is there like I and I haven't managed to get any like particularly strong characters out of like the the lottery thing in the game that that also this is actually while I'm thinking of it I should say up front if you are playing the game do not do not try to get a hero until you have 20 of the orbs or whatever they're called saved up because the the most cost effective way to buy them is to go in with 20 and it's a really weird system where you go in with 20 and it, it basically will load up five things that are like basically silhouettes almost of like what the heroes are. And then the first one you buy is five. The next one you buy is four. And I forget, it's like, I think the next one's four, like the next one's three. Eventually, like it works out that if you just try to buy five in a row, it gets cheaper as it goes along to till it is a total of 20 instead of you just going when you only have five, which just seems like, oh, it says basically you have five orbs, you can get a dude. But if you go in with five, you will only get one person and then have to save up to get those again. And, like, getting the... All these games are, at some point, 100% about being absolutely as efficient with your resources as you possibly can be. Because it is so fucking hard to get some of this currency up at some point in the game. So if you're playing the game, trust me, if you if you want even one time go in there without 20, you will fucking hate yourself for like a week because you'll constantly be thinking in the back of your head I'm such a fucking idiot if I want to get one more of those orbs it's going to take me like an hour of playing this fucking game to get one more, why did I waste it back then I'm I'm a terrible human being and that's and so that's the, the sort of business model around the game and I hate that fucking business model and I've played a handful of these games at this point, I've never really put money into them at all, but it is, they always you always hit that point where you feel like okay, this is where they start kind of gouging you for it but outside of the business model, I think the the actual gameplay of it is pretty good. I wish it was a bit more expansive. You only get four heroes basically on the field at a time. So it's basically, it's for the most part, it is four on four battles. When you get to the higher difficulty points, the enemies will get like, will have five or maybe six people. But the whole battlefield takes up just your your screen and so there's no scrolling like it's just like whatever like the grid number is on your screen and there's no more room in the battlefield so it's a pretty tight really short sort of fire emblem fight which is you know good for it being a mobile game that like you can get through these fights very quickly generally but then it's also you start sort of feeling like oh you know you can't really have that many that wide variety of characters it at employ at any given battle so it's like i've basically spent the whole game having like one person who is kind of like a magic in like blue or whatever because they have their weapon triangle of like you know green red blue and it's some weapons that fit into that and then different magic types fit into that and so it's like the rock paper scissors thing and so it's like oh i have a blue person i have a green person i've never fucking got a good red person out of my lottery so it's like that's all just been a weird hole in my fighter lineup for the whole time is i've got like one person who's red that i got it like that they just give you for free at the beginning of the game and they suck so i haven't used them at all and so I have like a healer and then I have an archer. 
and it it sort of feels very restrictive at some point that it's like I want to be able to use like a Pegasus Knight, or I want to be able to use a, a big armored dude who's very slow, but they can soak up a lot of damage. Or I want to use more magic people, and it's sort of very cumbersome to try to switch people out because of how how much you need them to be leveled up to be competitive in whatever mission you are on. And so it's it feels sometimes very frustrating that I want to be able to use more different kinds of units and sort of make use of their different powers, but you really can't at all. And so that's something that I've had a lot of frustration with with the battle system. But it is for just sort of like dropping in for like five minutes and going through a quick little thing. It is fairly fun. Like it's not really deeply tactical in any meaningful way. Or at least I haven't found, fought any bottle, battle where I felt like I really need to think about where I'm going to move and how I'm going to do this. I've just basically been doing it completely on instinct and getting by totally fine with a, like one or two exceptions. But, like, it is for, like, a short time, I think it is kind of fun. But I think the vast majority of players will hit a point at some point in them playing it, whether they you put an hour into it or you put, like, ten hours into it, where you are going to either be the person who spends money on this game or you're going to be the person who backs away because you can't, you don't want to spend money on it. And there's really no point to keep on playing it when you're not spending money on it. Well, luckily, if Fire Emblem Heroes isn't your cup of Fire Emblem tea, there's a lot of other Fire Emblem games coming out. Yeah. I just don't have the stuff know, that yeah. you would need to play them. So it's like, again, I've just fucking just re-released the GBA Fire Emblem game on iPhone. And I would I, I would so happily pay five or ten dollars for that. Because also, it, it is driving me crazy that I have not been able to get Lindis. It's like, I, that's the only Fire Emblem character I want. She would also perfectly fit in because she's sword, so she fits into the red in the rock, paper, scissors thing. It's like, all I need is Lindis, and like I would be able to put this game down immediately because it's like, I got her, and it's the only Fire Emblem character I give a fucking shit about, and I haven't been able to get Lindis. I did see one funny thing, which is that um, when you load up the game, it like shows you some characters as it's like downloading and it has some little info blurbs on them. Yeah. And whenever they talk about a character from the original GBA game, that game, when it came out over here, is just called Fire, Fire Emblem, Emblem, which yeah. makes it very hard to talk about. That's uh-huh. why we say the GBA Fire Emblem game. Yeah. And they call it here Fire Emblem The Burning Blade, which has basically always been basically a fan translation of what that is in Japanese. Yeah. And I thought that's funny. That is that maybe going to go on to be like the canonical title of that game? Yeah. Because it had no real title here, even though it was a prequel to another Fire Emblem game. Yeah, it is funny that when you're going through the story mode, it's basically broken up into chapters that each one is called like The World of Burning, The World of Awakening, The World of Conquest. So it's like all the different subtitles from different Fire Emblem games of like whatever heroes are from that are the ones you're going to fight in that. And it was like, because it's like I can never remember what the like Japanese title of the Lindis Fire Emblem game is. So I like when I got into that, I was like, oh wait, oh shit, I reckon these are the characters I recognize because yeah. I don't think the, there are any characters, or if there are, I didn't really remember them from the Sacred Stones one, which is the oh, only other GBA game I played. Game, yeah, yeah. All right, well, cool. So that's Fire Emblem. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's free to play, so you know, there's, there's no downside to just sort of giving it a shot. But I right. do want to like have people be aware that's like if you have not played one of these games before like it, it will it will get you eventually one way or the other if you have a crippling gambling addiction maybe stay yeah away. no definitely stay away because i mean there are like it is something which one of the other weird parts about this genre of games is that i have like actual serious like moral issues with the way they are structured and the way they psychologically pressure you to try to spend money on them when yeah. there's really there's no end game there's no stop to 
Like, there's no point where anyone who, if you want to start spending money on this game, where it's like, okay, I'm done spending money on it. it you, they're not designed to ever have that point. And so it's like there are stories of people spending, like, their life savings because they've gotten obsessed with one of these games and they have an addictive personality type and it, like, ruins their whole life. So it's like, that's a fucking thing that you... It's sometimes hard to grapple with when you're just having fun while you're, like, in the bathroom doing a fucking stupid Fire Emblem fight. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's honestly a question, legal-wise, for yeah. the future of games is they're gonna someone's going to have to crack down on free-to-play games eventually, especially in that kind of intense genre. Yeah, when they're that predatory. Yeah, but not not yet. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, stick, to, stick to actual paid games. You, you will spend less money on them, possibly. Possibly, possibly. yeah. Who knows? Yeah. All right, well, let's go ahead and move on to our news. Our first piece of news is our sad piece of news. Which is that Peter Capaldi announced last week, uh, Monday actually, so right after we recorded our last one, that he is departing Doctor Who at Christmas 2017, so the last episode of this year. So we've got the full season 10 coming up, 12 episodes, and then the Christmas special that is also Stephen Moffat's last episode as showrunner, last episode he'll be writing for at least the foreseeable future. Chris Chibnall is taking over for season 11, which will be airing next fall. They've said that, that, like, they've put out the timeline. That'll be fall 2018 is when that'll start. And that will have a new Doctor, obviously, although we're going to meet that Doctor at Christmas, which means we're probably going to hear casting on that soon. Yeah. Because they're going to have to shoot that Christmas special pretty soon. So there are so many things we could talk about here. But of course it starts with even knowing Peter Capaldi, and that was a name we both knew when he was announced. I'd seen him in things, and it sounded so exciting. Even knowing how cool that sounded... Neither of us were prepared for how good Peter Capaldi has been in this role. Is that a fair thing to say? No, absolutely, yeah. I don't think it was possible to be prepared. He has become, without question, my favorite Doctor. And part of that is just I think he has propelled Stephen Moffat and the other people working on the show to write better material than has existed in modern Doctor Who. Yeah. Period. If you look at especially Series 9, but also some of the better pockets of Series 8. And... It's sad for a couple of reasons. One, just I felt like I wanted more time with this guy. And we do get another year. And it shouldn't be ignored that we have a third of his run left to watch. And we shouldn't eulogize too soon. But it is sad that we don't get more than that. And I guess my other frustration, and it's something I want to talk about, is I think Doctor Who as a show might be in rocky waters if it can't get a lead actor to stick around for more than three years. Yeah. Because this is three doctors in a row. And David Tennant was a weird situation because he was three years, three seasons over five years, so that's a little different. But both Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi feel like they're leaving prematurely and it's feeling a little whiplashy at this point. Sure, yeah. And I just wonder if there comes a point where I it would be nice if the show had a doctor for longer just so it can settle into its own rhythms for a while. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, you know, I luckily Stephen Moffat has not set any like long distance arcs in play for Peter Capaldi, so it doesn't seem like it'll be tough to write him out the way it was clearly for Matt Smith, because yeah. nothing in Matt Smith's last season was building to a. And then they no, had, I mean it, it, the exact opposite because it's like they had introduced a new companion halfway through his last season. They introduced like a new costume. They introduced yeah. a new TARDIS interior. They introduced a new like opening theme like treatment. It's yeah. like everything about the halfway point of season seven was like we are totally reinvigorating Doctor Who. And it's like that's with oh, immediately as he's leaving. It's like well, fuck. Yeah, and I I doubt unless season ten is going in a direction we don't anticipate it going that that's going to be the same feeling here. Yeah. But it's still whiplashy, and I just worry about the state of Doctor Who if... Especially because Peter Capaldi for so long sounded like he was up for staying. 
it does make you wonder if there was external pressure from the BBC or Chris Chibnall or something going on there. Um, it, you know, you don't know. Yeah. But it is, it's just a little troubling because this is the second Doctor in a row leaving fairly unexpectedly, I think we could say. Yeah, I think I, I'm not that concerned about it just because I feel like it's hard to sort of like to establish a trend there just because I feel like the reasons that Matt Smith left and the reasons why Peter Capaldi at least like is saying that he's leaving are totally completely different where it's like with Matt Smith it's like I don't want to be typecast because he was young and like basically starting out his larger acting career that's like you know didn't want to stay on too long so he would be stuck in everyone's mind as being the doctor and then Peter Capaldi it's like because I've listened to the the BBC radio interview that he did where he announced it he basically said you know, I've never really done one job for this long. Like, his acting career, he's, like, moved on to other projects. He doesn't stay on for long TV shows. That's never been a thing he's done. And and it's something that he said in interviews a lot, because I've, I've seen a lot of interviews with Peter Capaldi since he started playing Doctor Who, because he's very good in them, and I just like him as a guy now. Like, not just as, as uh, an actor playing the Doctor. But he's, you know, he's basically just said, like, I like to take on new projects and, and new things and be excited in that way. And then also, you know, he's older than the, like, he's the oldest person to be played Doctor Who, like, when he was starting Doctor Who. And then it's obvious that, like, you know, he was saying he doesn't know how long he'd be able to keep on doing it and give it his best. And if he's not going to give it his best, he doesn't want to do it. It's just like, you know, and maybe that's, you know, it's just sort of like, you know, prettying it up a little bit. But it did feel like, you know, at least like he he, it sounded like he had like really good reasons for wanting to leave. And he there's did such soul searching, yeah, and, just... and there's such different reasons than Matt Smith leaving that I don't have a lot of concerns for like it being a thing that's wrong with the show or anything behind the scenes. But it is it, that doesn't make it not frustrating that of like because I'm exactly with you. Like I would have loved to have seen another two years at least out of him just to have the show have. That thing that it, it had back in the classic days of, you know, John Pertwee stayed on for five years and Tom Baker stayed on for seven. So it's like there was a, there's not, there wasn't necessarily an expectation for people to stay on that long. But there was a, there's a nice period in Doctor Who history of like these two really long sort of stable eras in the show that are like two of the strongest eras creatively in the history of the whole show. And it, it was, it's kind of cool to see that and it would have been nice to have especially for Peter Capaldi who his interpretation of the Doctor has so much to it that it's like part of the reason why it feels like we, we just met this guy is because there are so many layers to the character that feels like we have not been able to see him perform yet because he can perform it so deeply that it's like there's more and more and more you want to see him do. We were talking about that at Christmas the Christmas special that that uh, the, the return of Doctor Mysterio shows a side of that Doctor we just didn't know was there kind of. Yeah. And it was such a, a beautiful surprise that after two years with this guy, we're still peeling away layers. Yeah, and there's not because even I, you know, I loved Matt Smith's performance of the Doctor, but it definitely it, like it's, it wasn't just him. It was a lot of stuff at the show at that point. There was a sense of fatigue, or I had a sense of fatigue of like you know the really awkward like passing off of companionship to Clara halfway through season seven and stuff like that. Just made it feel like. You know, maybe, and it, and I think it sort of panned out that it's like, yeah, it may, it was probably good for him to leave when he did, and like sort of have the show oh. be injected with new life there. And I, but I don't get that sense this time around at all. Yeah, I mean, no question. In retrospect, you look at the Matt Smith transition. It was rocky, just in so much as that last episode is very whiplashy yeah. in terms of we have to build basically a final season in one episode. But past that, that was a reinvention. Clearly, both Moffat and the show at large needed. 
And it's just we're not feeling that right now. Yeah. And, you know, who knows? The other thing that I've been thinking that we don't know that Peter Capaldi would know is Capaldi has filmed season 10. Yeah. And maybe he got to the end of season 10 and said, you know what? That was great. I feel like maybe I've taken the character where I need to take him. Yeah. And maybe he's talked to Stephen Moffat and said, hey, Stephen, if I were to leave at Christmas, what would you write? And he's had that conversation and said, okay, this is this is the right moment. And that could totally be true. And yeah. I don't want to discount that. They know more than we do. Yeah, and I actually sure. had not heard that longer interview with Capaldi. I only saw the brief statement. So I'm glad to hear more of that um, yeah. from him. But, yeah, so, you know, who knows? This could work out perfectly. But it's just on the surface right now, especially because Series 9 was such a breath of fresh life for television in general, not yeah. just Doctor Who. You watch that, then we've been off for a year. We're coming back, and it's like, oh, it's almost over. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Because there's also just elements of, like, the way that season nine ended. Because I've, like, rewatched that so recently. It's like, it feels like he's, like, kicking back up into high gear as the Doctor, you know? It's like he gets... He's sort of, like, officially donned a more, like, properly doctorish costume than his hoboish look that I love in season nine. But, like, a part of that was, like, him being like, yeah, I'm going to throw on the fucking red velvet coat. I'm going to be this badass motherfucker. And he gets his new Sonic screwdriver that we've seen in two Christmas specials now because of how, like, weird the fucking schedule has been with taking this year off. But it's like, it does feel like they're building up to what what felt like, you know, and again, we who knows how season 10 goes in terms of the narrative, but you could totally imagine after the end of season nine that it's like, this is, we have three more years of this character. Like, like this is where, you know, this is where all of that's, this is where Doctor Who happens. This is like where classic Doctor Who happens of just like, like random fun adventures in the galaxy that don't have a larger narrative. Like that's in my mind, that's like what that moment was sort of building up to. And even obviously like, you know, a lot of that is my imagination and me, like my attachment to certain eras of the show. But it like, it had that feeling of like, the Doctor is back. And it, it, it is sort of weird to get that, like, shocked in the reality of, like, oh, fuck. It's like, it, it, it's he's not going to be back for that long. Like, it's not necessarily even reasonable to ask Peter Capaldi to stay on for, like, that, that long. But it is, it, it, it sucks because it's like, you just wanted to see so much more of this character. In in episode count, he will be the, uh, he will have fewer episodes than either Smith or Tennant. Yeah. And that just, and it's, I know that's a small, petty thing, but it just, it's one of those stats that's like, fuck. Fuck. Yeah, because it feels like if he had, like, five years, it, it would just be like, oh, he's the new Tom Baker. Like, he's yes. the new person that everyone thinks of when they think of Doctor Who because of how much of a presence he can have and how much, how, like, deep he can go into that character. That it, that it felt like, you know, because there was a lot, there was a fairly large section of some of the audience of the show that was hesitant to have an older actor play the Doctor because obviously a lot of new Doctor Who has been about a certain amount of sex appeal in the character and, and I feel like the way that he's just sort of like completely destroyed any sort of concerns about anything about that and showed that's like, you, we don't, that's not what the show is about. You don't need that side of the character. That's not important. That's like in rediscovering something about the character that I feel like we haven't seen since classic Doctor Who, which has just made it feel like if he had that much more time on the show, you would be able to look back on this era and just be like, that's like, the definitive Doctor Who performance, and and, it, and it, maybe it still will feel like that, but I think it's harder to sort of look back at it when it's like relatively truncated in the whole history of the series. That like it doesn't have that like triumphant feeling that like the Tom Baker era does, you know? Yeah. Well, we can say this at least through two seasons, and who knows what'll happen in series series ten? Uh, whatever we're maybe gonna lack in quantity. This era has had in such spades in quality yeah. that I still think it's going to stand as a pillar of Doctor Who yeah. history. For me, I for mean, sure. Like, he's, like, I mean, 
I've never had like ever since like I started my full rewatch. I've never really had to like soul search myself and be like, is Patrick Chapman really my favorite doctor anymore? Like, is that really where I'm falling? That's like even like going back and rewatching those eras. Like, it's always like when I go back to the second doctor, it's like, oh fucking yeah, like this dude is a fucking thing. And like Peter Capaldi has that exact same quality of like I just go back and watch any random Peter Capaldi episode from the past two seasons and it's like oh yeah this dude's a fucking thing like yeah. like I've spent like kind of unreasonable amounts of time in my life now just like watching random clips of Doctor Who episodes on YouTube when I just like need an injection of it and it's like Peter Capaldi's Doctor is a very good vessel for that because you just on the Doctor Who YouTube channel, they have, like, a bunch of different... Like, the official one, they have a bunch of different small clips from all these different episodes. And, like, his are really fun to watch because you just go back and, like, oh, this scene is so good. And then you see in, like, the recommended videos, oh, that scene's really good, too. I'm going to watch that. And all of a sudden, you've spent, like, an hour watching, like, a collections of three-minute scenes, you know? It's It's been incredible. And certainly this announcement adds extra resonance to uh, his last speech at the end of Return of Doctor Mysterio. Yeah. About things ending and things moving on, which already had a couple layers because it's about River, it's about Clara, it's about Stephen Moffat leaving, yeah. and now it's about him leaving, and it's it's interesting. It makes you kind of want to go back and rewatch that scene at least to to as the kickoff to this last year of a pretty significant era in Doctor Who because I think the Moffat years, which we're going to have to talk about at the end of this year, you know, yeah. that is as as the the Moffat years, it will the book will be closed on those, and really that is a book that does basically include the Russell T. Davies years also because Moffat was a major creative force there yeah. as well. And I do think there is this sense of culmination to it, to me at least, of, of you know, the Russell T. Davies years and the things that were both wonderful and rocky about those into the Moffat transition, which was so inspired but also messy. And then Peter Capaldi comes in and it just kind of clicks into place and the show goes to these levels that it's never been to before, yeah. at least in the modern era. And... It's exciting, and it's going to be so exciting to see what this last year is, because it's the last year for a lot of things. And to transition the discussion a little bit, yeah. I don't want to ever play the game of who's going to play the next Doctor. I think it's a stupid, insipid yeah, conversation. Yeah. But I do, it is always worth talking about, well, what should come next in kind of a mm-hmm. tonal yeah. sense. And I've been thinking about this a lot, that if there was ever a time, I think, to radically change up our vision of who is Doctor Who, I think it's after Capaldi. Yeah. Because I really don't think after Capaldi and after everything that's happened, you know, creatively over these last few years and what he's brought to that performance and how he's basically reanalyzed kind of the archetypal Doctor Who and rebirth, basically done the definitive version of that for yeah. our modern times. I don't think you can have another middle-aged white guy. I mm-hmm. don't think, frankly, you can have another guy in the vein of Smith or Tennant. I think you have to go in a different direction because I think anyone who follows Capaldi is going to have an uphill battle, especially if they are cut from a similar cloth. Yeah. Like, you know, the discussion of should a woman play Doctor Who, if ever there was a time, this is the time for that transition, I feel like. Yeah. Because I think you have to go somewhat radically different or else you really just it would be really tough to follow this guy. Yeah, because it's something where... I, I Basically, I fundamentally agree with you, and it's something that's kind of frustrating of, like, now that Peter Capaldi has done it, and it just feels like, yes, finally we can have someone that's, like, over fucking 30, you know, playing Doctor Who. It, was, it felt like... You know, and obviously, like, David Tennant, like, looks younger than he really is, but still, like... I mean, but he also played the Doctor... I mean, didn't play the Doctor younger than he really is, but, like, that the, the facade as younger. And, it, and it's, like, it was kind of... Even though I'm a big fan of those actors and their performances, like, it was a little bit frustrating for, like, the Tennant and Smith years of, like, 
I like want a more mature actor playing this character because that's like the way it was forever. Like other than Peter Davison in with the Fifth Doctor, which like was a big departure and is like it was a very different thing. Like it's always been a more mature actor has sort of taken this role and done that with it. And it's like it, it's so good to just feel like yes, like Peter Capaldi has proven that you don't need like the sort of like young dude sex appeal thing to be able to play this role and make it marketable and make it work. And so it's like I want another sort of like older person to play it, but it then also feels like but then you can't have another like fifty year old white dude play the role now because how do you possibly stack up to what Peter Capaldi just did? Especially with a new showrunner coming on. Yeah, you know it would be one thing if if say Moffat was still writing it. But I think with Chris Chibnall coming on too, if you had someone cut from that same kind of cloth of like older British acting royalty, yeah, that immediately brings so many comparisons that I wouldn't, as a writer, want to live up to, you uh-huh. know, or try living up to. I would want to strike out in a different direction, um, kind of like Stephen Moffat did a little bit in hiring someone as young as Matt Smith. Although again, that's not radically different from David Tennant, who was older but played the Doctor so youthfully. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the only name I would throw out there is the name that so many people want, which is uh, on the like female casting side, is when people have said Haley Atwell should play the Doctor. Sure, yeah. I hear that and I'm like, yes, if ever there was a moment, that would fucking work. I feel like that would work. If Chris Chibnall is up to it and has an idea for how to write that, that's one of those names that I, I hear and I'm like, that might not have felt right after Matt Smith. Yeah. That would feel right, I think, in some way here. The 13th Doctor just can't be... The same as, frankly, any of 1 to through 12 at some point. Yeah. Because this feels like such a culmination of so much of that. Yeah. Because it is... It is... It is and it, the end of an era in a lot of ways because it is, you know, like you said, the Moffat stuff. Like, while you, we have the Moffat years and, like, what is going to be now, like, the two Moffat doctors in the way that we have, like, the two RTD doctors. Like, the Moffat DNA was in the show since, since like, the rebooted series. And in some ways, like, in the interim between there when he was writing Doctor Who short stories and stuff. And so it's, like, it feels like there is that lineage that even when there was a big stylistic shift when he became showrunner, like, it calls back to something, to stuff before that. That it feels like, you know, Chris Chibnall has worked on the show and stuff, but it's, like, he's... Not that big. He was not that big creative voice in it the way that Moffat was because who wrote an episode or multiple episodes each season. That it's like there's an there's an opportunity and and sort of like a danger in some ways of now is like told like kind of like a new perspective that we've not seen like a holistic sort of view on what Doctor is or Doctor Who is from this guy before and like him taking over showrunner. Like what is that going to be like? How like how much is he going to change and what is he looking for in a new Doctor is such a mystery, I think. It is, and it'll be curious to hear how this whole process goes because, you know, the way it happened with Russell T. Davies, that handoff from him to Moffat, is that Russell T. Davies was just concerned with finishing his stuff. Yeah. He wrote The End of Time, Parts 1 and 2, and he finished that script with the line, I don't want to go, you know, Tenet, exit stage right, and then it's, he handed the script to Moffat, Moffat cast Matt Smith, Russell T. Davies had nothing to do with that, Moffat cast the new actor, wrote that final scene of the end of time, and so literally there is that, you know, hard handoff. You assume that's what's going to have to happen yeah. here, where Moffat is probably just concerned with finishing his run, and then it'll be Chris Chibnall deciding who the next person is and how they kind of enter the series and stuff like that. But it's going to be an even harder shift in some ways because... You know, Doctor Who has been running a long time in the modern era, yeah. but we've only had two showrunners, and they were very closely linked. Like, Moffat was a very clear... He was the guy who was going to take yeah. it. He was always the guy who was going to take that. 
that was there was no clear number two in the Moffat years. Yeah. The way there was in the Russell T. Davis years. So even though, yeah, Chris Chibnall's written a couple episodes and they're good, and I have no doubt he can do a good job. Yeah, because he's, he's shown he can run a show before with Broadchurch. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, he's, you know, he's a smart guy and he likes the show. It is going to be just a big question. Like, what does that look like? We have not had this different a voice on the show yet. Yeah, in it, modern it, times. It, it, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of. I mean, it's not 100% the same because John Avery Turner took over in Tom Baker's last year, but it sort of feels like that of like all of a sudden 1970s Doctor Who becomes 1980s Doctor Who, and it's like this is a fucking different thing. It's like there's obviously there's like similarities and stuff, and there are like the, some old writers are still writing on it, but when you go through classic Doctor Who, it feels like. Well, there's like a bit of a jump when you go from like Patrick Troughton to John Pertwee and then from John Pertwee to Tom Baker. Like there's a bit of like frisson there. It's like when you get Tom Baker's last season, which is far and away his worst, like it's really bad. There's almost no good episodes in Tom Baker's last season, not because of him. But that's when John Nathan Turner took over as sort of producer slash showrunner because there wasn't really a showrunner credit back then. And so John Nathan Turner took over, and then, you know, he was Fifth Doctor, Sixth Doctor, and Seventh Doctor, and so, you know, reigned over some of the most, or probably the most maligned years in Doctor Who history of, like, the show running with the the, the sort of the heart of darkness with, like, some of the bad shit that happened in the Sixth Doctor's run, and for the Fifth Doctor, had some really bad episodes, too. Even though that's also, that's such a weird period, because it's also got some of the absolute classics. It's got some of the highest ones, with the highest yeah. highs of the series, with Crackcast Revolva, and then the show sort of really finds itself by the end of the Seventh Doctor's run. But it is like, there's some, like, really bad television was made in yes. those years. Like, there's someone who's fucking watched all of those episodes, some really, really rotten shit was fucking put on TV back then. And and I'm not saying that this means that Chibnall's going to have that effect, but it was, a, it's a really shocking thing of, like, this is a whole new era of this show, and all of a sudden, this dude's got question marks on his all of his costumes, and the the new theme is fucking the best theme that Doctor Who has ever had. Still, is the best version of that theme Doctor Who has ever had, but it's all like crazy with like light, like like the stars lighting up and shit like that. And the it's just like the whole sense of the show sort of shifted in a way that felt way more dramatic than it ever did before. That that like is. You know, only comparable to, obviously, when the Revived series came on. That was, like, a really extreme shift in style. And the TV movie was also. And so I feel like it's... I think there's a big possibility for that to happen here. Of, like, oh, like, that was... I mean, it's you're not going to get, like, 70s and 80s. But, like, this is, like, maybe, like, 2020s Doctor Who. When we have a perspective on what those sort of decades feel like looking back. And, like, this is, like, a whole new, fresh sort of style and look for the show. When you don't have, like you know, Moffatisms in sort of the, in the script dialogue and in the broader structure of the plots and stuff. And you have a whole nother person running the show that we haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> our entire lives, like, in college and things like that. Yeah, it's all like, Moffat, Doctor Who. Basically, like, the whole life of this fucking podcast. podcast because yes. I caught up to modern Doctor Who with the end of season five with Moffat's first year. So it's like... That is, it is literally the whole life of this podcast, and it's basically of me watching Doctor Who as it airs has all been the Moffat era. It's sort of a weird thing to think about of the certain things you come to expect in terms of how Moffat writes on a very basic level that we are, like, super familiar with because he's written an ungodly amount of Doctor Who at this point. Like, that's all gone now. Like... And who knows what Doctor Who even looks like with that gone, like, going forward, what sort of, like, what is the new style that takes over 
that stuff. Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny whenever someone says Russell T. Davies did two Doctors, that is technically accurate, but I never remember that. Yeah, Chris Eccleston is one, one year, year, and and him to Tennant is one of the frankly smoother transitions between Doctors. Yeah, it's very maybe much... like the smoothest transition Doctor Who has ever had. Right, because there really is no stylistic jump between yeah. them, for instance. Whereas Moffat was fully ready to reinvent the show when Capaldi came aboard. But yeah, not just Moffat doing six years, but Moffat doing two Doctors who had you know good sized runs. Yeah, and normal average sized runs. Yeah, so. It's, it's just been a hell of a long time. And, you know, again, talking about things we don't know, you're talking about, you know, Chris Chibnall, maybe he's going to radically reinvent it. He might not. We don't yeah, know. Yeah, who knows? Like, he might try to sort of replicate some of the, I'm sure, like, not the script writing stuff, but I, but I suspect there's a good chance that he will keep stuff of, like, the TARDIS set might look the same. He might sure. not want to change, like, the opening titles. Like, there's no set in stone, like, this showrunner needs to change all of this stuff when he takes over. Absolutely. Um, but we don't know, and that's the kind of thing, though, that Peter Capaldi probably thought about. Like, he yeah. probably talked to Chris Chibnall and said, what are you planning? And, you know, maybe Peter Capaldi thought, it's for the best if I let this be a clean break. And that totally could be the right move, to let Chris Chibnall yeah. come in and just start fresh. That might be the thing the show needs at this juncture. Yeah. So, you know, as we as we talked about, it's it's... Very sad that we don't get more Peter Capaldi past this last year. And again, don't want to forget we have a lot left. Yeah. At least, you know, 13 hours left. And that's going to be great. And I can't wait. Um, but it's also so exciting in this way of there is so much unknown. And him not being there for the next season. That adds to the unknown. And that kind of is what Doctor Who is. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that reinvention becomes even more absolute. It's, it's, you know, whatever your thoughts, it is a wildly exciting time to be a fan of this show. Yeah, you know, it's it's the thing that only Doctor Who can provide is just, like, say, like, fuck it, we're doing do a whole different thing. And, you know, like, Doctor Who has traditionally survived that even when it seemed like it could not possibly survive it. Somehow it crawls back from the darkness and, and of comes course, back on air. The big difference between now and the John Nathan Turner years is yeah. the BBC loves and believes in this show yeah, right no, now. they are not trying to actively murder Doctor Who in its sleep the way they were in the fucking mid-80s. Like, Chris Chibnall will have as much support as he needs to do a good job, and yeah. if he can't, that's on him, and, and other factors, of course, but... It's not going to be because the BBC doesn't love and believe in this show. It is bigger than ever. Peter Capaldi is, you know, the fourth Doctor in a row to just take it to new heights, yeah. both creatively and commercially. And there's no reason to believe that can't continue. Uh-huh. And that's exciting. And, you know, I, I can't wait to see what happens next. I mean, we're, again, we're going to have a new Doctor announcement pretty soon. It feels like we just did this. But yeah. You know, it, and it really wasn't, it's, it, it wasn't like just last year. It was a couple of years ago. But it, it feels more recent yeah. than it, it is. Um so yeah. it's exciting. And the other piece of news with Doctor Who is that BBC uh, formally announced it will be returning to BBC One and in America, BBC America, on April 15th. So we don't have that long to wait. April yeah. 15th, we have more Doctor Who, and we're going to get one last full season. And then at Christmas, we say goodbye to Capaldi. And yeah. Yeah, it, and also like a thing that's easy to sort of forget in all this news is that we're also, in April 15th, we're going to meet a whole new character companion. in, like, the new companion, played yeah. by Pearl Mackey, that, like, that's another question mark is, how long is she going to stay on the show? Like, is she good? We Like, it's, it's, it's another, it's a weird thing of the tendency of Moffat to want to keep companions for a lot longer than RTD did, is, I think, another reason why it feels, like, so sudden with both Matt, both Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi is, like, they both only, they really, like, Matt Smith basically really had one slash two companions with Amy and Rory and, like, a little bit of Clara. That's an interesting, weird section of the show. And then 
it'll be interesting to see how much of a mark Pearl Mackey will feel like she can make in this season, you know. And then, yeah. and luckily, she has a full season where yeah. she gets to come in at the very beginning and be there to the end. And yeah, we'll so just... I'm, I'm really excited to 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 get that. And it, it it feels like that excitement has been lost in the sense of like, oh shit, Peter Capaldi is leaving. And so right. you have to remember, like. Again, we have a whole season with this guy. We get a whole new introduction with like with this new character and all that. And the brief clips we've seen from the this season looks really exciting. Particularly, I'm really excited for the first episode where it looks like the Doctor is working as a professor at some kind of university where the Pearl Mackie character is. Like, I... I don't want to get like the dread and fear of the unknown get completely overpower the excitement of, of what we're getting this year. And I, just, I don't have dread or yeah. fear of it. You know, personally, I, I, there's obviously there a potential downside, but I am excited to see what happens. Doctor Who is on such sure qualitative footing at the moment that, you know, at least through the end of 2017, I'm pretty confident we're going to yeah. get some good television. Yes, for sure. And whatever may come after that, up or down, that is what you sign up for when you're a Doctor Who fan. Yeah. And uh, that's that's the fun of it. And the great thing is we have this podcast to continue talking about it. And I'm glad that even if Capaldi's era is ending sooner than we thought, we have Doctor Who to talk about this year. Yeah, we have a whole year of episodes we can do talking about these episodes of Doctor Who with Peter Capaldi. Absolutely. And then, you know, into, like I said, we're going to have to do at least a full episode topic on breaking down the Moffat years and things like that. And making top ten lists and crazy things like that. Like, I am really excited to have 13 more episodes of this podcast where we can just go, man, Peter Capaldi was really good in this one. (laughs) The same thing that we did the last two times we did this. If you were like, eh, this episode was okay, but fucking man, Peter Capaldi was really good at this one. It, we got repetitive at a certain point, yeah. and I was so glad. There was only it. so much you could say about, like, he was really good. Like, no, but seriously, like, he was even better at this one than the last one. Well, that was the amazing thing about Series 9, was it was just designed for every week them to challenge him in a new and different way. And yeah. I wonder if that will continue in Series 10, where every week you're like, I didn't... I. He did hell bent, but I didn't know he had this in him, you exactly. know, something like yeah. that. It's it's amazing. So, or heaven sent, whichever. Both of them are great, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, so that's Doctor Who coming back April fifteenth. Cannot wait. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and move on. Uh, let's talk about something shitty for a moment. That, okay, yeah, that's our, our bread and butter on this the podcast is Persona, Doctor Who, and just shitty stuff. Shitty stuff, and nothing is shittier than the DC film universe at the moment, yeah. which is apparently a. Fl- I, I tweeted this. It seems like the DC film universe is the entertainment equivalent of the Donald Trump presidential administration. It does feel like these two things have coincided, not completely coincided. Where they're ideologically fascist, they're really leaky, people keep quitting, and they have no sense of how to do what they're trying to do. Yeah. And people just keep on lying. It's just like, no, and you know that they're lying, it's like, no, you're not. At least there are no negative consequences to the world from bad superhero movies. Yeah. But it is an interesting parallel to draw because we were drawing that parallel all last year with their fascistic uh, superhero movies. But the specific news this week is this was rumored a couple weeks ago, but it was specifically confirmed that Ben Affleck dropped out of the Batman movie, at least as director. Yeah. He says he's still going to act in it. We'll see if that That other shoe could drop. People Uh are... Yeah. (laughs) Because... So what's so funny about this is that obviously this had been in development for a while as Ben Affleck was going to be directing. The writer on this film is Chris Terrio, which is Ben Affleck's script guy. He wrote 
Argo and got an Oscar for it. And he wrote Batman v Superman and very much did not get an Oscar for it. <laughs> and, you know, so, uh, yeah, so it's, it's still scripted by him and Ben Affleck. And it's still, you know, apparently he's going to act in it, but he decided not to direct it. And, of course, there are all sorts of behind-the-scenes leaks about the movie being creatively troubled, like every single other DC movie. This is, like, the third one in a row yeah. where the director has dropped out. This time the director being, you know, WB's go-to guy at this moment. Yeah. Ben fucking Affleck. And it's just, the schadenfreude at this point is off the charts. Yeah, like, I will admit I had a sort of a weak moment personally, but where I just sort of indulged in the schadenfreude where I went onto the DC Cinematic subreddit. (laughs) That is, it's a dark, sad place to go to of people that just so, so desperately want the DC Cinematic Universe to be a thing. And, or like... Not just that they desperately want it to be a thing, but they want it to have, like, already been a thing, right? And, and and I had this moment when I watched Batman v Superman when I went there where I was just like, I have to know what the people who, like, the people who drank the Kool-Aid are saying about this movie. And it was a dark day, and this was a bright day of being like, what are you, what are you responding? Like, how are these people tackling this? And there was a certain weird delusion, and the name escapes me of the director, but it's, the, who's the dude who directed Zodiac? And like oh David Fincher David Fincher yes that's it that there are a lot of people that are like like I'm like who do you want to direct Batman now that that Ben Affleck's gone and everyone was fucking saying David Fincher to a point where I was like <laughs> googling it to see if that was a thing and I think maybe he said at one point that he would like to direct a Batman movie at one point in his life but it was like I just keep like it was like a hundred comments of people saying that they wanted David Fincher to make it it's like. There's no world in which David Fincher makes your fucking Batman movie for I mean, WB right now. Let's talk about this because there's a lot of names being floated in the rumor mill. And if you recognize that director's name, they're not going to direct it. Exactly, and this is, yeah. Especially not David Fincher. This is the worst job in Hollywood at the moment. Because you have to come in and make a movie without any pre-production time basically now. Because you they're, 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 you know, they probably got a date set. They know when they want it out. You don't get to come in and redevelop it. You have to come in and direct someone else's script. And you have to have on set as your leading man the guy who was going to direct it and did all the development on it. Yeah. No auteur director in Hollywood is or near auteur is going to want to go near that yeah. because that is a nightmare scenario. There is no world in which that turns out well for them. Doesn't mean the movie has to be bad, who knows? But it will be a company man kind of thing. It'll yeah. be someone who can come in and knock out the script and hopefully not be too intimidated by having Ben Affleck, the former director, on set the entire time, probably micromanaging everything, yeah. because how could he not? Yeah. You know, I mean, it will be an awful job, and it seems like most of the DC movies are awful jobs, hence people quitting and quitting and quitting, yeah. but... It is, yeah, it's, you're not going to get, I mean, I saw another rumored name today was Catherine Bigelow. No, <laughs> I, what are you talking, no, Oscar winner, yeah. is she, yeah, she was, she's yes. the only female Best Director winner, she's not going to come in and direct your shitty Batman movie, yeah, I'm that's, sorry. That's even more of a weird pipe dream than fucking David Fincher. Yeah, at least David Fincher, I can connect the dots of he's directed for WB, he just made a movie with Ben Affleck, Gone Girl, and they're probably friends. But it's not going to happen. Yeah. But I can see where your mind, your brain, like got off the rails. Yeah. It's no. <laughs> yeah. Like as much as I would love to see a David Fincher Batman movie, like that sounds fucking amazing. Yeah. There's no fucking way he would ever do it. There's I mean, no way that Captain Bigelow would do it. Yeah. Uh, let's be honest. It's going to either be some indie director you've never heard of getting their first promotion, and it's going to ruin their career, a-, a la Mark Webb and the Amazing yeah. Spider-Man. Uh, or frankly, it's just going to be Zack Snyder. I mean, I you know oh, that is the man. most 
That's like the darkest way it could But it's go. the most likely way. It's, yeah. it's, they're just going to have Zack Snyder come in and do it because he's done all of them so far other than Wonder Woman. And oh, they yeah, still fucking they doing Justice League. They, I st- totally they still that out. don't have a guy for The Flash. They have a guy so far for Aquaman, but I, David Wan, is that his name? The guy who directed like Insidious and stuff. Yeah. James yes. Wan, sorry. Yeah, James Wan. Very talented guy. I don't... I, I still think he's probably going to drop out of that at some point. Because yeah. it still hasn't shot... You know they still don't. They still are apparently making their cyborg and Shazam movies, and they don't have any directors or writers for those yet. It, it Why are a, they making a cyborg movie? Why do they want cyborg to be a thing? I it's so sad. They they have all you know. It's it's a clusterfuck, and probably it's Zack Snyder is in the Michael Bay Transformers situation where he probably wants to leave, but they are giving him an unholy amount of money, yeah. and he's like, I just can't. I want that Scrooge McDuck vault, and I want to swim in it. Yeah. You know, like Michael Bay says after every Transformers movie, this is my last one. And then they say, we could give you $30 million yeah. this time. And it's like, it's like, well, okay, well, I, I will only make another Transformers movie if I could get Anthony Hopkins in it. Right. It's like, we can make that happen. Like, Indeed. What? And I do think they're in that position because as a studio, it's easy. They trust and know this guy. Just have him keep churning out the movies even though they're shitty. It really is the Transformers situation. And frankly, Michael Bay's done a better job with those than yeah. Zack Snyder's sure. done with. Yeah. yeah. There is no Transformers movie I hated as much as Batman v Superman. So that's true. There yeah. you go. Uh, that's a sad state of affairs. But. Yeah, it is really sad when I can honestly say I would rather rewatch Transformers 2 than rewatch Batman v Superman. That's a fucking dark hole to go you down. You haven't even seen Suicide Squad, man. Yeah. You don't even know how bad it gets. Yeah, so, I mean, apparently, yeah, that's the only other one, is apparently they're going to have David Ayer do the Gotham City Sirens movie, which they have, which they have further in development than a Batman movie. They're going to make the Harley Quinn spinoff before they've made a Batman movie. It's a very strange series of events. And it's, it's, yeah, this just, they're desperately looking for their Rousseau brothers, like what Marvel has now. And they don't have them. They don't have any of that. It's, it's a fucking disaster. And this is just, yeah, the schadenfreude is high. At yeah, this point. it's it's like one instance where I do just kind of desperately want, like, all of this to come crashing down as immediately as possible so that, like, because it's just like the well is poisoned at this point. It's no, like, you no fucked it, it so hard that's like, I want to see good movies out of the DC characters as much as I want to see good movies out of the Marvel characters. So it's like, this whole weird house of cards has to go up in flames and for, like, some good, like, director to be able to come up from the ashes and be like, Hey, I've got a good idea for a fucking Shazam movie or something. Like, let me do it. And it is so bizarre that it wasn't even five years ago we had Christopher fucking Nolan making Yeah, it was like the the WB superhero movies in the form of the Dark Knight films, like, were on the top of the fucking world, you know? Yeah, they were were literally like prestige dramas. Yeah. Well, they weren't nominated for Oscars, but the Oscars literally rewrote their rules because they weren't. I mean, that's the kind of thing that these movies had going, and the House of Cards already coming down. And I have, at this point, especially with the ideological undertones of these films, I have so little tolerance for them, especially now. Mm-hmm. It's just, I, you know, I have no interest in this Yeah, show. and with how, like, you know, we're, the superhero, like, movie genre is in such a different place than it was in, like, 2008 with The Dark Knight and, like, when Christopher Nolan was making his movies, that it feels like we are in such a different place if we can have, like, really happy, fun superhero movies that can still have, like, complexity to them, but have a, like, really approachable, light, like, fun tone at their heart, which is, like, you know, harkens back to the core of the genre and how it was made in comic books. It feels like... I'm very happy we have, like, this really fantastic alternative to what WB is trying to do with their DC characters. I should say, I am very excited for one DC movie coming out this year. 
Yeah, the I mean, me too, because I saw a trailer the Lego, for it. The yeah. Lego Batman movie, yeah. which is next week. I cannot fucking wait for that, and it's legitimately looks like it's going to be the best Batman movie in years. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. It, I saw the, they put out a clip of, it was like the Joker on a plane threatening the, the pilot, and he, at the end of the clip he basically lists off all these different supervillains and starts with, like, Mr. Freeze and, and the Joker and stuff like that, and then eventually he ends it with, like, the Kite Man and <laughs> Captain Condiment. And, like, it's this whole list of like insanely obscure Batman villains that already exist and he ends with the, the pilot asks him like are those guys real it's like yeah they are google it and that's the end of the clip it's fucking hilarious I hope we can both go see that and talk about it yeah, next week yeah I do want to see it it looks great I mean it's it's something I've been thinking about because I've seen on Twitter kind of this growing discussion of and it is inherently tied to DC the, the immorality of how some superheroes are portrayed these days and it is in the DC movies where you know as soon as you've decided that Batman wears armor, not a costume, you've kind of lost it mm-hmm. at some yeah. point. But, but I mean, especially like when you decide that he kills people, you right. have lost it so hard. Yeah, and you know there was that image that came out from Justice League of everyone in their costumes, and the yeah. Flash. The Flash even has fucking body armor and shit. And it's yeah. just that's the last character I want to see in a fucking like bulletproof chest piece. You know, it is it is disgusting, and it's that I think these movies are kind of exposing that when done poorly, Batman. And some of these characters can be disgusting characters, you know? Oh, and yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, like, if you go back and read Frank Miller's Batman stuff, it feels like, at the time, you were like, oh, like, it's, like, this is, like, kind of gross Batman, but he totally knows it, and then you get older and you reread it, and you're like, he didn't know it at all. He was no. like, this is gross fascist Batman, and he's, like, totally up on gross fascist Batman. Yeah, and, you know, I've been thinking, like, to me... And I have a reason for all this. I'll come back around to it. Okay, yeah. To me, the most moral version of Batman is Adam West. It is, yeah, it is absolutely. The, it is the Batman of the 60s who is there to help maintain law and order, who works with the police, who has Dick Grayson so he can like teach and impart messages of peace to the next generation, who... In that movie, they or in that uh, TV show, they specifically have him working for the Wayne Foundation. He's yeah. just doing charity work to try to rebuild Gotham economically. Like I honestly think that show puts so much more thought into the morality of Batman than a lot of modern interpretations. And we've had this dull, you know just swarm of bad interpretations lately. Don't forget the Killing Joke movie, and, right? Yeah, fuck. and you know things like that. And it's one of the reasons I'm excited to go see Lego Batman, because it's a fun, family-friendly take on Batman, and I am so sad that apparently we've culturally forgotten that that can be a thing, mm-hmm. and I, do, I so want that to be a thing. Yeah. And so I'm excited to see that movie, if for no other reason than it's probably a fun, you know, not completely amoral take on Batman. Yeah, it doesn't have to be like Batman and Robin either. Like, yeah. it's not like your two options are not Dark Knight and Batman and Robin. Like, that's it's those have never been the two options, right? No, no I yeah, I mean Batman is a very malleable character. These are all very malleable characters, but they've been twisted to the point of breaking in the current uh, mainstream, and that's sad. So. Yeah, I can't. I hope we can both talk about Lego Batman next week. That'll yeah. be a blast. I'm actually so excited for this coming weekend, February 10th in movies, because we're getting Lego Batman, which I'm so psyched for, and John Wick Chapter 2. Right, yeah. Have you ever seen John Wick? Yeah, I saw John Wick. Thanks. I actually saw it like six months or so ago. Fucking great yeah. movie. I can't wait for John Wick 2. Yeah. Looks, the trailers look great for that, too. I might have to go like do a fucking double feature of these two radically different movies. Yeah. But they look, they, they will be equal amounts of fun. If, there's, if the trailers and stuff are any indication. I'm just waiting for them to make the Lego John Wick movie. That's where I'm really <laughs> going in for. 
It would be great. Yeah. I think Keanu could pull it off. No, absolutely. Yeah, Keanu, love him. All right. Let's go ahead and move on. Uh, two pieces of PS4 news. Yes. One, I just threw this on the outline because I saw it and I thought so it was fun. The, that Final Fantasy XII remake, the Zodiac Age, right, yeah. coming out July 11th. So, excited for that? Because they're putting sure, out at yeah. a good time because there's like not a lot else over the summer. So I'm Yeah, glad. it's like the, the, the Final Fantasy XII stands alongside Final Fantasy IX as the Final Fantasy game that everyone forgets exists. Yeah. But then like... But like, there's like that contingent of Final Fantasy fans that are like, "You people are crazy! This is the best Final Fantasy ever!" And like, both of those games are like the two of like where the Final Fantasy fans like say that, and I kind of actually believe them, even yeah. though I've never played those two. I've always wanted to play nine. I've always wanted to play twelve. Definitely excited for this remake, and I like the window it's coming out in. Other PS4 news is that uh, there's that 4.5 update coming to the firmware later this year, and they had two specific announcements that were interesting this week. One is that. They will enable 3D Blu-ray functionality, which they've always promised but never delivered on, but only via PlayStation VR, Yeah, which is kind of weird. And if you have a PlayStation VR, I guess that's cool. Yeah, it's something, yeah, it is like, it's it's a weird thing to think about of like, you know, I, I have, I've never put it on, but the idea of like sitting down and watching, especially if we were watching a long movie with like that thing on your head feels like that would get kind of uncomfortable to a point where it's like, you wouldn't, you know, like, you would maybe play video games for a long time with that thing on because video games are, like, active and you're directly engaged with it. Like, the idea of sitting on a couch with this fucking thing on your head and watching, like, a long, like, two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour movie just feels like, why am I doing this? Why am I just not watching this on my TV while, like, laid back on my couch, like, totally relaxed? Yeah. yeah, a little weird. The other one, and this is only something that's notable to me because I thought the coverage of it was hilarious, is that the PS4 will have uh, support now for external hard drives. Yes. Nice feature. I think a lot of people in gaming press don't know that there's an option to put in internal hard drives in your PS4. Yeah. I read a lot of stories that were like, the PS4 has come with a 500 gig hard drive and there was no way to expand it. It's like, it's really easy. Yeah. It's It's one screw. It's cheaper than an external drive. It's more efficient. It runs better. Yeah. I didn't know people had such a hard-on for external drives. Yeah, like, it's something that I actually have, like, a very specific distaste to the idea of having external drives yes. hooked up to a console at all times. Like, it's something where, like, I, you know, I'm totally happy to have it be out there and, like, have it be a thing because I know there are people that, like, would, you know, very specifically want to make use of that and stuff like that. But for me, personally, it's like, I saw that came out, I was like, yeah, like, great. Like, I'm never, I would much rather just delete and, like, manage the memory on my hard drive than, like, have to have stuff plugged in all the time. Yeah, I mean, I have that for my Xbox One because there's literally no other way. Mm -hmm. But I would much rather go that other way of Xbox One somehow adding internal drives than PS4 adding external. That would be a hell of a patch. That would be a hell of a patch, yeah. No, but it's, I mean, it's nice that they're adding it, of course. Features like that are always good to have. But I just thought the gaming press, like, really dropped the ball on that of not reporting that, like, it's You've always been able to expand it. It's re- In fact, the PS4, the launch version, made it super easy because you just slide off a panel. It doesn't even require any like screws or anything. And then you do have to get a couple of screws just to get the enclosure out. Yeah. But it is the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. And, and again, it, internal drives are cheaper. They're, you know, they, they run better because they're running right there internally. Yeah. There are a couple of headaches with reinstalling things. But it's fine. And yeah, I understand if you're totally like allergic to that kind of thing, you can use your external drive. Just for me, it's like PS4, put that in there, and then I never have to worry about it again. Yeah. Way better than having... I mean, my Xbox One looks like it's on fucking life support. Because it's got that giant fucking power brick that's half the size of the console. It's got a hard drive coming out of the back. It's got, you know, HDMI cords. If I wanted to, I could put HDMI into the goddamn thing. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. 
And the PS4 is great because it's one cord. Yeah. Well, I guess HDMI. Two cords in there and maybe one coming out the front to charge things. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it, it is definitely. Like, it's just having external hard drives running. It's like, like, you know, I don't have to move console, my console, as much nowadays as I have at different points in my life. I've gone through times in my life where it's like, I just want to be able to move this console to this other TV. Like, because sometimes if like I'll have to move my PS4 into different places, it's like I don't want to fucking unplug all this shit and plug it back in. I don't like having that like you know running its fan and like generating heat in your entertainment system and stuff like that. It's just it's so much easier to just fucking buy like a normal two terabyte laptop drive and slap that thing in there. Yeah. No, but it, I actually I felt this a little bit also when the when the Nintendo Switch was announced. Yeah. And people were also like, well, how can I use my external hard drives on this thing? It's like, because they have internal micro SD support. And that is, again, to me, such an easier, nicer solution to that problem. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's a weird thing that I guess some people just have. I just didn't know that was such a big contingent of people who just don't want to open their console whatsoever. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, so if you want it, external drives for your PS4. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. yeah. like, great. Yeah, great. It's a good, fun, nice, accessible feature. Yeah, it's cool that they can just patch that in too. That's yeah. that's interesting. So, the PS4 continues to improve on that level, which is nice. Let's go ahead and move on to some Nintendo news. Okay. Uh, three things this week. One, Nintendo has officially ended Wii U production worldwide. Yes. Which I think is the impetus for me wanting to do this little Wii U topic, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But the Wii U has ended production. That was a strange story. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. I mean, basically, just over four years from release to ceasing of production. That is. That's some Dreamcast-style shit right there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is, like, when you think about it, because I was looking this up the other day just out of curiosity, the Dreamcast basically was, like, on the market for about 18 months before Sega announced that it was dead, which, like, when you think about relative to console lifespans, back then the average console lifespan was four to five years, and then now the average console lifespan is, like, eight to ten years, and it's sort of, like, relatively similar in terms of how long those are on the market compared to their sort of contemporaries. And the weirdest thing, I think, also is that the Dreamcast was following a, a period of downward spiral for Sega. It was yeah. not following the Genesis. It was following the, the Sega Saturn. Saturn yeah. Right, and things that also were not all that successful. The Wii U was following the Wii, which was this mammoth runaway success for Nintendo. Yeah. You know, still, it's way up there on the charts of highest-selling consoles. And this is way down there on the charts of lowest-selling consoles. So, yeah. interesting run. But the Wii U, we uh, pour one out for it. Yeah. And long, long may it live in death i don't know sure yeah hopefully, hopefully everyone's we use last for a long time because you're not getting new ones yeah <laughs> all right so we've done the seen that um let's see uh kimishima the president of nintendo yeah. a lot of this news came from an investor's call he did but he told the um, newspaper nikkei in japan that nintendo online services the the uh, program they're going to have yeah. like their their playstation plus or xbox live gold the annual fee for that will be somewhere between two to three thousand yen um, and this is from the Engadget write-up, which would be less than twenty to thirty dollars at current exchange rates. Yeah. So, assuming there's not a radical difference in price between the Japanese and North American versions of this, it seems like they are aiming for a much cheaper price point for that service than PS Plus or Xbox Live Gold, which is nice because that's one of the things we said that yeah. the only way this thing works, frankly, is if it's cheaper, and it looks like it will be. Yeah, like like hopefully it like everything about the service like works the way it needs to work and stuff like that, which is a unfortunately a question mark for nintendo but it is like that is more reasonable it's still like especially if you take it's sort of weird that it's at like a range of two thousand to three thousand you know slash twenty to thirty dollars just like why not just i mean i guess they just haven't figured out exactly how they want to price it yet but it's sort of weird that it comes out as like it'll be in this ballpark 
and we're going to figure out specifically where it is later instead of like waiting until you figure out what specifically it is and then announcing it then. But if it does come in at about $30, I still think like with what they've announced in terms of how like their their Games for Gold-esque program works, that still sounds too expensive for to me of like like one NES slash SNES game that you get to play for that month and only that month is like that's so but there are a lot of question marks cheap, we yeah. don't know how the thing runs or works or looks there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of things left to be answered with yeah. that yeah it is, but it is, it is definitely nice to for them to like it is definitely not going to be as expensive as the other services which is like the right first step yes. for what they've said for about it so far yep and my final news item is more of a discussion. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the future of the Nintendo 3DS. Yeah. I've done a little research, put some stuff together, because there were a bunch of sales figures that came out over the last month for a, a number of reasons. Kimishima had an earnings call, a lot of Nintendo releasing their year-end sales data and stuff like that. And a big question mark is, what is the Switch positioned as? And we've talked about this a lot. Is it replacing just the Wii U, or is it replacing both the Wii U and 3DS? Is there hope, ultimately, that's their one console moving forward? Or yeah. do they plan on there being a Switch and a 4DS at some yeah. point? Is it, is it a console that can also be taken portable, or is it a portable device that can also be a console? Or is it supposed to be like both of those at the same time equally? Yeah, and I think the answer pretty clearly to me at this point is Nintendo probably doesn't know either. Yeah. And it's because they are, I think, in a position they did not expect to be in, if you look at 3DS sales. So I want to, Kimishima said on the earnings call, he said to investors they are not abandoning the 3DS. And he yeah. made that pretty clear. That has been the company line, but this was a pretty clear statement of that. And I think for people who might be on the outside looking in and not understanding why that's the case with the Switch on the horizon, I want to outline some things. And again, I don't think Nintendo thought they were going to be in this position when they started development on the Switch. Mm -hmm. Sales of the Nintendo 3DS were announced on this call. They have passed 62 million units worldwide. That, that is a lot. That is yeah. incredible. I mean, again, it's not the DS, which was 150 and is tied with the PS2, but that is incredible, especially considering... The death of other portable consoles. Yeah, like because that's coming out like it, the 3DS came out in like the height of like smartphones being a thing. Yeah. So it's like it had this whole other competitor that that market never had before. Yeah. And also, last time they said this, which was less than a year ago, that number was 54 million. So it mm -hmm. has gone up a lot since then. So you know, at least eight million sales reported since the last time we had a number for this. So that is a huge amount of consoles out in the wild for the 3DS. Moreover, Pokemon Sun and Moon, the last big 3DS titles, which came yeah. out in November, have sold, just through the end of 2016, this does not include a single 2017 sale number, 14.5 million copies combined. The 3DS sales record is 16.5 million, and that's for Pokemon X and Y. This is going to blow... That might have already blown past that. Yeah, I suspect it probably did. It probably has. So, and also... I, you know, Call of Duty and Battlefield and some of those games don't release sales numbers. They release, like, dollars but not copies sold. Yeah. That could very well be the highest selling title of 2016. I mean, 14 mm -hmm. and a half million is a shit ton of copies. Yeah. You off, you free, very rarely see games sell that high. Yeah, it's very rare for a game to get, like, over 10 million. Like, that's yes. when you're talking Call of Duty. That's yeah. what, like, that's when, like, above that is where you're getting, like, Grand Theft Auto numbers of, like, this is just, like, an insane, like... 30 million or something like that, you know? Yeah. So overall, this is another thing we learned from the earnings call, sales for the that last quarter of the year for the Nintendo 3DS were up 20% over 2016. And 2016 is... Or 2015, sorry. Yeah. But 2016 is the fifth year of this console's release. That doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. That does not happen, especially in this day and age, with, you know, the Vita is not 20% up over year over year. No, the not, the yeah. 3DS has really only been growing... 
and it is in a stronger position now on sales, frankly, than it's ever been. I mean, you're five years in, and its highest selling title has come out. And, you know, normal, that I don't think has happened with other Pokemon games where there have been, like, two per generation. You know, Black 2 and White 2 did not sell more than Black 1 and White 1 right. or something like yeah. that. Sun and Moon are blowing past Pokemon X and Y. And it also raised sales numbers for every other 3DS title. New ones released last year, but also older games. And some of that was Pokemon Go and the, you know, just increased... Uh, public presence of Nintendo in the gaming scene because of some of their mobile stuff and the Switch announcement. But clearly there's some other stuff going in the water. And so what you got to understand here with the 3DS is that I think it is doing better than anyone could have expected it would be doing, especially at this point relatively late in its life. Yeah. And Nintendo would be committing business suicide if they cut that console off at the knees right now. Yeah. There is no way for them to indicate that they are going to be abandoning the 3DS because, one, they are a publicly traded company and their investors would riot with that. And it would just be irresponsible business. Yeah. But, two, it is a question whether the Switch will work. It probably is going to do better than the Wii U, but we'll see how well it's going to do. Yeah. And it is possible that it will be smart in the long run to keep things like the 3DS around because... On sales-wise, this shit works for Nintendo. Yeah. Those numbers are kind of incredible. And even me, as someone who loves the 3DS and has been generally aware of how well it's been doing, putting those numbers together was kind of eye-opening of like, shit, I, I really do would, would guess that when they started development on the Switch, when it was the NX however long ago, they were probably thinking, by the time we're ready to launch this thing, the 3DS will be winding down. And it's not winding down sales-wise. And, you know, they might, the, the problem might be, frankly, not having enough software to support the 3DS going forward, yeah. because a lot of resources are going to the Switch, but it is an interesting thing. That is why, you know, 3DS games have been announced for this coming year and things like that. That's why the Hyrule, or not Hyrule, uh, Fire Emblem Warriors, not Heroes, yeah. is coming out both on the Switch and the 3DS. Yes, because it's a cross-platform title. Yeah, and that's only new 3DS, but even that, that's got to be a pretty significant portion yeah. of those units. So you just you know you have a built-in audience there. So I just think that's a really fascinating state to be in because I, there, there is no historical parallel in gaming of a, a company having two systems out at once, the 3DS and the Wii U. One goes up like this and one goes down like this. And as one is dying, you know, canceling production, they are right now struggling to meet demand for the 3ds i don't know if you've heard this story but there's 3ds yeah. scarcity out in the wild probably the same reason as the mini nes scarcity because all their resources are going to making to the nintendo switch yeah but that also shows that again even if it's artificial scarcity or whatever is happening there more people are buying 3ds's than they can make these things at the moment so it's a really fascinating position to be in and this weird line nintendo is going to have to walk and it, I don't know if that's bad for the future. I don't know if it's good. It's just you. It's something you kind of have to keep in mind if you want to understand where Nintendo is headed. Yeah, it, it is just it is something that makes the Switch a more sort of confusing thing than it was before. Of like, if the 3DS continues to be this successful, does Nintendo at some point make the choice of like diverting their first party development resources to keep on making other 3DS games instead of like? trying to bolster and get like people to buy the switch because there's already that huge audience on the 3ds and, and it's sort of it's a weird position the company is of like at some point do they just say well let's make a 3ds2 or whatever that is to like sort of capitalize on that market if the switch doesn't sell as well as they need it to and like that's a weird like you said it's, it's a position that no video game company has ever been in because no video game company has ever had two different like hardware lines that they then try to sort of conceptually fuse together in a, in a different way. You yeah. Know? It's like that's just never been done before. So it is such a weird thing of like 
what do you do about that? Like, what does that say about where you need to divert your, divert your resources and what you need to focus on for the future of the company? And I think it could work. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I think the switch, I, I do think they've been savvy in their marketing. You know, today's the Super Bowl, and, and we've probably all seen that 30-second Super Bowl spot. Yeah. And I think they continue to be pretty good about being able to cut together, like, a commercial for it, where they're focusing a little bit on families, but more on this is, like, the more mature Nintendo console. And I can totally see there being a... A set of people out there who would not have ever bought a 3DS but will be there for the Switch. Yeah. And in addition to the, just the overall Nintendo crossover audience that you always have. And maybe the Switch and the 3DS could totally live together in harmony. Maybe the Switch is such a runaway success that the 3DS really does become obsolete, which is probably what Nintendo is hoping for in some weird way. Yeah, because you you want... It seems like their business move of, like, the idea of the Switch is, like, well, we want all the Nintendo people to be on our one Nintendo thing so we can have all of our Nintendo people making games for this one Nintendo thing. And so all Nintendo is just Nintendo. But I do wonder if they, you know, in their crystal ball, however many years ago when they started developing the Switch, if they could see what the numbers on the 3DS would be now, would they have said, okay, we're just focusing on home console for this, the Wii U follow-up, and we're going to keep a separate portable line and the 3DS will continue? Or or would they have just said fuck the home consoles and let's just do portable devices because that's clearly what we've always been best at. I mean, no, I mean, it's worth noting the DS is the most successful thing Nintendo has ever done mm-hmm. by a country mile. If you combine the DS lines and the 3DS lines, which isn't too unreasonable to do, yeah. you're over 200 million units in the last 12 years. It is... Yeah, Game Boy has, is a similar story to that. Like yeah. the Game Boy Color, or Game Boy, Game Boy Color and Game, Game Boy Advance. Yeah. And the Game Boy Advance SP, like, all sold crazy. And, you know, it could totally be the case, and this is probably what Nintendo's hoping for, that the Switch picks up that mantle, where the DS kind of took over the Game Boy and then became a big thing. And maybe the Switch will be the same, you know, in 10 years we'll be saying that line was the Game Boy line, the DS line, and then the Switch line, or something like that. That could totally be the thing that works. And the Switch is, I think, poised to be the right thing for kind of the way the world works now. But for whatever reason, the 3DS has just defied these expectations of how we think people play games right now. Yeah. And that's a really interesting story to me. Yeah, no, it's, so. it's, a, it's, a, weird, it's a weird thing. Because it, it is very counterintuitive. Of, it, it makes you think back to those stories like five, six years ago where it felt like every single website was constantly running like, video games are dying because mobile games are going to be the future and nobody's going to ever buy video games. And then now we're here and like the PS4 and the Xbox One are selling record numbers. Obviously the PS4 are selling more. But it, it is easy to forget that like the Xbox One is way outpacing what the Xbox 360 sold comparatively. And then also the fucking 3DS is selling like crazy. And it's like, and again, I guess people just like video games. Yeah, we don't have any hard numbers to compare, but totally possible that the highest selling game of 2016, which had so many high profile releases, was a fucking Pokemon game. Yeah. And that, that Pokemon game, you know, they were able to spend way less on marketing than like on Uncharted 4. Way less on development, you assume. All these things. And that game can sell 14.5 million units in less than two months. Yeah. That's insane. Because those Pokemon X and Y numbers, 16 million, that's over like three years now. Yeah. So it's a really insane story, uh, and I think it transitions well into our next topic, where we're going to do a little Wii U retrospective. I'm also going to do sort of a partial 3DS retrospective, okay? just because I've wanted to do it, and I, I also, like Nintendo, probably thought the 3DS would be winding down, so maybe we have to do part two of this at some point, but I kind of want to close the book on my life with Nintendo in the last generation okay, before yeah. we start the new generation. Is that fair? Sure, yeah. All right. So let's talk about the Wii U, Sean. Yes. Ooh, Wii U. Such a crazy story that this 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 system has had yeah. announced. I mean, it was released in 2012. Yes, a year before the PS4 and Xbox One. Yes, and it came out of you know its announcement was so baffling because the Wii 
had this runaway success, but it had runaway success for a much shorter period than consoles have. It was a supernova of a console. Yeah. It blew up, burned, incredibly bright, and then retracted in a way that was kind of weird, where the last couple years of the Wii's lifespan were a lot sparser than you would expect of a console that had 110 million units in the wild. Yeah. So, you know, 2010 had, like, Mario Galaxy 2, phenomenal. Uh, 2011 had Skyward Sword, and that was effectively the last major original Wii game. And it was also acclaimed, but, you know, again, at that point, a lot of people weren't focusing on the Wii anymore. Yeah. And so it was clear to Nintendo that they probably wanted the Wii to live longer than it did, but they had to inject new blood into it somehow. So at E3 that year, they announced the Wii U, and absolutely everyone is confused by this thing because yes. it's and again I will I will I think my unified theory my grand unified theory of the Wii U will always be they've rolled out the announcement so poorly that I don't know if you could ever have come back from it which is that the initial pitch even to gaming journalism and gaming press made it look like that thing was a peripheral for the Wii yeah it's called the Wii U the initial trailers if you go back and look at them don't even show the console they just talk about the gamepad and it was Again, it's still kind of an interesting pitch, but the way it was pitched initially made it seem like this is something I'm going to buy for my Wii, right? And a lot of people were confused as to what it was. They showed it off with demo footage of a Zelda game that wasn't real, which is just... Never do that. That's a bad idea. Nintendo has a weird tradition of doing that because they did that on the GameCube, which is what made everyone hate Wind Waker's art style because they're like, oh, there's the cool trailer of like, this is Zelda on like this technology and it's like cool Ocarina of Time, mature Zelda. And it's like, then they they make, you know, cel-shaded Zelda that looks amazing. Everyone's like, ah, fuck this kitty shit. Where's the shit you showed at Space World? Right. I mean, you show off a console like that to show what it can do. But if you're showing a game that will never exist, it's a pure hypothetical and yeah. it's a bad idea. So... Yeah, and, and a lot of those initial like Wii U games they showed off at that announcement just never came to be. There never was that Zelda game on the console. They showed off you know some mini-game stuff that really never coalesced. So it was very confusing. The Wii U finally launches in uh, at the end of 2012, and it comes into a market where the 360 and PS3 were sort of surging in the end of their life. Yeah. And so there really wasn't room for it because it was basically them releasing a 7th generation console, a PS3, Xbox 360 competitor, but when those consoles were on their way out the door. Because yeah. now, finally, Nintendo was caught up and could... Again, we forget, that is the Wii U is the first HD Nintendo console. Yeah. The Wii did not out, it output in 480p maximum. And so it was not a competitor yeah. in that The menus on way. the Wii really... At some point, it was sort of unacceptable when you like loaded up your Wii you're like... The text on this just... I can't even read it anymore. It's so blurry. <laughs> it was a very strange thing. Um, so yeah, so the Wii U comes out. Uh, its big launch game is New Super Mario Bros. U, which I have now played. And it's really good, but it's not exactly what you want for a launch yeah, title. Yeah, because, I mean, how many New Super Mario Bros. games have they made? Was that, like, the third one? Fourth one? Um, it was the third slash fourth because around the same time New Super Mario Bros. 2, which was the third game for the 3DS, came out. Right, yeah. Um, and it made sense on some level, I'll say, because people forget... New Super Mario Bros. is the highest-selling DS game, which makes it one of the single highest-selling video games of all time. Like, it's up there with Grand Theft Auto V and yeah. stuff. It sold, like, 60 million units. And New Super Mario Bros. T- uh, or Wii, for the Wii, is not far behind. That is one of the highest-selling Wii games. So it kind of made sense. Those were huge mammoth hits. Try that for the Wii U. Yeah, but, like, the thing is, like, they sold a lot, but I don't feel like they generated a huge amount of excitement, which is what you need a game to sort of evangelize your console for, is it has to be an exciting game, not a well-selling game. Yeah, and I think those... 
you know, those those games had so much, you know, they, they, they were enthusiastic in terms of critical reception and their great games, but neither New Super Mario Bros. 1 or the Wii 1 were made to sell those systems. They came yeah. out while those systems were mature, and that's, I think, what they profited yeah, I mean, from. It, it's like if you tried to sort of sell a console off of the back of Mario Kart, it's like, if Mario Kart will sell well, Mario Kart has always sold well, but you're not going to get people like going crazy for Mario Kart because it's like, it's fucking, this is like the 10th Mario Kart. Yeah. Uh, the Wii U at the beginning of its life. So that was the, the big launch game. They also had Zombie U on day one, which has gotten out in infamy as this weird, some people love that game and some people yeah. have played it. Yeah, I mean, now you can you can play Zombie on your PS4 or Xbox One and you can have a lot of fun about how big a fucking deal they make about the minimap in that game because the minimap used to be on the tablet and now it's just at the corner of your screen like every other fucking minimap. And so some asshole of the game is constantly at the first hour of that game telling you like, and make sure you look at your minimap. It's like, I get it. It's a fucking, it's a small map that shows me the area I'm in. I don't need you. This is in every fucking video game made for the past 20 years, asshole. It's, yeah. it's a very strange experience to play that game completely divorced from the console it was made for. Yes. So the, uh, they also had Nintendo Land. was like their pack-in game with the it Wii U. their Wii Sports equivalent that yes. did not do what Wii Sports did, obviously. Because it's not... I mean, I've played Nintendo Land. I got it with my system. It is... It tries to do the Wii Sports thing, but it just can't capture that same fun and, and freshness. And it's, it's very mediocre. So, yeah, it never really... That did not help them... It was a while before the Wii U really had anything else. I mean, it had a whole bunch of third-party ports of that's that something... had its launch. That's like a weird. It's a fun thing to go back to and watch videos from that time of like people reviewing and doing like quick looks and stuff like that. Of Assassin's Creed Three on the Wii U, Epic Mickey Two on the Wii U, Batman Arkham City Armored Edition, like Mass Effect Three, but only Mass Effect Three on the Wii U. It's like there was a fairly like actually large number like if you look at the launch lineup of the Wii U it has one of like the most robust launch lineups of any Nintendo console ever because it has all those third party ports of games it, that are coming out on the 360 the PS3 that's where I wanted to go next because yeah. that's one of the most notable things about the Wii U launch I think we've forgotten about this that Nintendo very specifically positioned the Wii U to compete with the 360 and, and PS3. PS3 that you could buy a Wii U and get the because those were not like really old games at that point no that was the year that Mass Effect 3 came out the year Mass Effect 3 came out one year after Arkham City came yeah. out, that was the season Assassin's Creed 3 came yes. out, all of these things. So those were of the moment games, and if that had worked and had continued and people kept supporting it that way, the Wii U could have been more viable in that way. For a number of reasons it wasn't. Um, yeah. And including most of those ports were shit. Yeah, the frame rate is really fun to go and look back. You could have YouTube videos at 60 frames per second, if you look at that Arkham City and you're like, oh boy, you cannot play this game at sub 30 frames per second. That looks impossible. Yeah, and I have never gone too deep into learning about the technical side of the Wii U. Yeah. It's, you know, in some ways its power was on par with what was out there, but I think it was harder to develop for. It wasn't like the Wii in that you couldn't develop those kind of games for it. It had, the, the, the gamepad has everything you need to play a standard game. It's got yeah. the two sticks, the two shoulder buttons, all that stuff. It's like the most normal controller Nintendo had made in years since yeah. like the well, GameCube. Well, the, the Pro Controller specifically yeah. is just a total, I actually still love the Pro Controller. It's a really solid game controller. Um, so anyway, yeah, there's, it, it theoretically had everything it needed to kind of compete until the moment it didn't. Yeah. And that's what was so interesting because for a long time the Wii U was just kind of off in the desert. I did not get one until 2014. Early 2014 oh, yeah. is when I got my Wii U. Because throughout 2013 it kind of had nothing and then it's a big release in 2013 
the big releases were like Wind Waker HD and Super Mario 3D World. And so I think that was enough finally to kind of get me over the hump and I was so curious about this thing. Yeah. I got it in advance of Mario Kart 8, which was the kind of the biggest system seller they ever had. Yeah. I think I'd love to learn what the attach rate is specifically of Mario Kart 8 because that's got to be, be mammoth. Like it's got to be absurd. I just wonder if it's the highest in history for a non-pack-in game. Yeah. Because yeah, it's Mario Kart 8 is pretty darn hard high selling for a system that only sold 13 million units. Yeah. yeah, and same of like Smash Bros and things like that. So, you know, that was kind of the Wii U. The Wii U was in those then that first year, like end of 2012, most of 2013. I remember it just being this punchline because I think no one knew what it was for. It wasn't a bad system. It's not like it couldn't do stuff. Yeah. It's just that it had some good games, but none of them were like radical in the way that early Wii games were like, this was made for the Wii. You know, this is clearly like Mario Galaxy, things like that. Those are Wii games. Of course, you could play them with a typical controller, but they were clearly made with that kind of in mind. Yeah. There wasn't any kind of unifying thing of what is a Wii U game. And they ultimately did stumble upon some of that later in the system's yeah. life, but by then it was too late. And We'll talk about those games. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the thing with that with the Wii U was that the, like, the thing that the Wii had was the motion control gimmick was something you had never really seen before. Like, stuff like that had been tried in, like, weird, obscure gadgety shit in the past. But it was like, the Wii was the first time we had seen that. And that has an immediate, clear market power. Because that's also before smartphones were common. That was before, like, touchscreens were on everything. So, like, intuitive motion-based interfaces were not a thing in any way. And so all of a sudden you have every other video game controller which had two analog sticks and like fucking 20 buttons. And if you had not played a video game since the arcade days, you would be completely lost if someone you just handed someone the 360 controller. You hand them a Wii remote and it's like everyone can understand exactly how to use that thing immediately in the way that everyone can understand how to use a smartphone immediately because it's just based on very intuitive movements that you just use naturally. It's not sort of abstracted through button presses. So the Wii has this built-in gimmick that is so effective at being able to get people who do not normally play video games to play them. And then you saw that, like, Xbox tried to replicate that with Kinect. Sony tried to replicate it with Move. Obviously, those, like, actually Kinect sold really well, but they did, it didn't really work. And so, but in that, that whole market, I think, went to smartphones as games, like, of, like, your grandma will play a, like, Candy Crush Saga on the, her phone. Well, it's worth remembering. Fucking Xbox. It's worth remembering, at least for a couple of years, Nintendo was also to make, able to make real games with that. Yeah, that's true. Which the Kinect and the Move never did. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, so, like, the Wii, like, it's, I think it's clear why it was successful and able to be as successful as it was. With the Wii U, you have another console that has a sort of gimmick with it, with the tablet, but there's even if you have a game like like Super Mario Maker or some of the other games that like can make good use of that, nothing about that gimmick is exciting, and nothing is about it is like going to get people to come to your console because one like one of the things you can do with it is sort of a worse version of what they had been doing for years on the DS and then the 3DS. That's what I was going to say is that at its best, it's the way the DS works, and the problem is the DS works because it's in your hands. Yeah, exactly. It's you right can immediately there. compare the two screens so you can use it that way, and then also like. The, the the thing that is insane to me about the, the Wii U tablet, even if it makes sense in terms of how much money it would have cost to produce it this way, is just how bad the touchscreen is on it compared to what you have on like your phone or on a tablet like an iPad or something like that. The touchscreen on the Wii U gamepad is fucking awful compared to what you are used to in your standard today. And that's maybe the number one thing of whenever I've used the Wii U that makes it feel like clunky and like childish is that it feels like my first tablet and it doesn't feel like a real 
device you would expect to have used in 2012 it's, in the way that the switch looks like it is positioned to be with the way that that tablet looks like it's designed it's a capacitive touchscreen yeah now. exactly and you know the touchscreen on the wii u was basically the same that you get on the ds and 3ds and that's fine on those systems because those had long since found a niche for that yeah but the wii u clearly yeah it needed if if the gamepad either didn't go far enough or went too far it was like it, it was yeah it, like it, 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 it yeah like it felt like nintendo did not fully commit to the gimmick or it's like, or like you said, they did. They needed to not have a gimmick at all and gone with like it just was a pro controller and that was it and that was what that console was. Or you know, because it also still that's the other thing is that it's got a lot of holdovers from the Wii, where all your Wiimotes and stuff still work with it, and a lot yeah. of Wii U games still use the Wiimotes. Like actually, yeah. I've been playing New Super Mario Bros. U, and I found my favorite way to play that game is actually with a Wiimote turned sideways because that's how I played the Wii version of that right. and I'm just used to those controls and where like this one move you do you kind of shake the controller a little bit for and it actually in that game it's hard to describe but I find it easier than doing like a different button press it just kind of works intuitively because it's like it's this thing you do where you like grab an enemy and you can like throw them and you do that through a shake it's just more intuitive that way sure, yeah. and so like for games like that it is still essentially just an HD Wii yeah. And, you know, they still, like, if you want to go buy a Wiimote now, it is branded as a Wii U remote. You know, yeah. that's how they switched that. So all of that, I think, was confusing to people and there was no clear gimmick. And they probably would have been better off if they had just made an HD home console with the Pro Controller being the standard, but then still having Wiimotes for if yeah, they because wanted to everyone had that. a couple of those things yes. lying around somewhere. And I think that probably would have ultimately been more successful. So, anyway, this is all to say that I think in that first year, year and a half, and it's also worth noting the Wii U entered. I think at a pretty cynical time for Nintendo fans where the 3DS had a rough launch year. Yeah. It was starting to turn around, but the Wii U, it wasn't easy to trust the Wii U at launch. Like, the Wii U was the first Nintendo console in a long time, kind of my adult gaming lifetime, that I did not, first Nintendo console that I did not buy at launch. And I think that was because the 3DS had a rough launch. And I was like, well, maybe I'll get one of these, but I clearly have to wait. And there was nothing that compelling to get you in the door for it. And I think a lot of people were thinking that way. Um, but anyway, so for that first year, year and a half, the Wii U was often kind of this punchline. And I don't know if you can pinpoint a moment when that turned around for some fans. It never turned around commercially. The Wii U never yeah. sold well. They had multiple kind of inflection points like Mario Kart 8, Smash Bros. that were designed like, this is the moment we're going to turn around, hopefully. They were never able to pull it out, even though some of those games were great and sold well and all that. The Wii U never became a thing, and there's lots of other things we can talk about yeah. with it. But over the years, the thing that has happened with the Wii U, and I think most owners will talk about now, is that people do like it. Like, I don't think a lot of Wii U owners would say to other people, it's essential that you own this. But in a weird way, I think a lot of Wii U owners like me would say, I found a use for this in my life, and I sure, really yeah. like having this thing. Yeah, and if I was... have to read another fucking thought piece on the internet about, like, oh, the Wii U was really the best console this year, I'm going to fucking shoot myself. Because, like, even if, like, there is an argument there, at some point it just became obnoxious about, like, yes, I get it. You like fucking Nintendo games. Yeah, no. And I, I, don't, I don't prescribe to that argument. Yeah. I could make that argument for the 3DS in several different years. Sure, yeah. But I don't, I don't think there's a way to do that. Like, again, I'm not going to be one of those people who will tell you that if you never owned a Wii U, you were missing out on the best console of the last four years. It's just not true. But I think a lot of people have some fondness for this weird little console because at the end of the day, it wound up having a small but really solid batch of titles yeah you could still play your wii games on it so it was kind of a natural turnover you know i sold my wii and have a wii u and i've kind of never looked back on that it's nice to have and i 
probably play Wii games more than I play Wii U games on it. <laughs> but yeah. it's, you know, worth It's knowing. sort of like the Vita in the PSP slash PS1 for me at this point. Very much, yeah. yeah. Um, and I actually think the Vita is probably the best comparison to this thing in some ways. Sure, yeah. Even though I think it's a better piece of hardware, it's, it's, sales, it's sales trajectory, and I think the way people treat it is very similar. Yeah. Um, but I think for me, if I can describe what I've liked about the Wii U is, you know, one, like I said, the, the, the first-party games, you know, your Wii U games... Wii holdovers and things like that. Been fun to play. It has been my go-to multiplayer console. When my brother is over and we want to play a game together, we're playing the Wii U by default. That's just the console we play and it's got the games to back that up. So that's been a great thing about it. And I'll talk about that a little more because I have a little countdown for us. Okay. Um, but the other thing is that I want to note is the virtual console. And people have still made fun of Nintendo's virtual console and, and there are problems with it. But... I really think it was one of my favorite things about the Wii U years is how they built that out and that they, you know, you started with your NES and your Super NES as they had on the Wii and it is a dark mark on the Wii U years that they've never gotten all the NES and Super NES games over from the Wii to the Wii U. Yeah. You still definitely play them, but it's a hassle. So that's kind of sad. But then they started doing some cool different things where, like, they started doing Game Boy Advance games and DS games and they finally brought over Nintendo 64 games. And other than the NES, which for some reason has never run well on the Wii U, all those other ones, Super NES, Game Boy, all of those, run so beautifully on the Wii U. They've had a small pool of titles, but generally a pretty concentrated pool of greatness. And it's been a really fun thing for me having that of I've been rediscovering different titles because of that over the years, and it's a really fun place to play a lot of those classic games. And I you know, wish there could have been more to it, and I hope if the Switch is a success, they can pour more money into that. Yeah. Because obviously at a certain point, there wasn't a lot of virtual console because not a lot of people had the Wii U, and it's a self... You only put the virtual console stuff on there for people who already have it. It's not a system seller. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is something where it's like... I think like the, one of the main things that people have issues with with how Nintendo has handled their virtual console stuff is that it's like it's not that what is there is bad. It's that like the potential for that service is such a like fantastic, robust thing, and it's so frustrating to keep on saying this like weird little trickles of games of like you said like they still haven't like had the full list of games that were available on the Wii Virtual Console available natively on the Wii U Virtual Console, which, like, when you say that, that sounds fucking insane to me at some point. It is insane, and you know that. It is hard because, as you say, it is the potential of it is what's sad about the virtual console. But what's there I love so much, and it's hard, there's really nothing else to compare it to other than, you know, Sony has their PS1 classics. Yeah. But there are plenty of holes in that library, too. Oh, sure, yeah. And it's also not the cleanest emulation. It's basically just running the PS1 game as if you were playing a PS1. Yeah. You know, it's fine. It's not especially nice to have on the Vita. Um, but, you know, they could do more with it. And uh, But I think overall, even if they could have done more with it, what was there across both the Wii U and the 3DS, because the 3DS started having Game Boy games and stuff like that, some of it was frustrating, but I really liked having it. And ironically, the thing that justified the gamepad to me by far the most over the lifespan of the Wii U has been Virtual Console. I very much enjoyed playing, like, Game Boy Advance games and Super NES games yeah. and things like that just off the gamepad sometimes, like... For a long time, when we lived in our apartment in Boulder, um, up in my room, I had on my the desk where I did all my work, I had a little TV, and the thing I had hooked up to that for most of the, those like two, three years was my Wii U, and sometimes I would turn the whole thing on and play a Wii U game or a virtual console game, but oftentimes I would just kind of bring out the gamepad and sit on my bed or something and play Metroid Fusion or something like that, and it was a really cool way to do it, and yeah. I liked some of that stuff, and that was where... I think the gamepad kind of shined brightest, even though clearly that was never an intention and it's not a selling point for yeah. that console. So it's a really bizarre thing. But I like discovered a lot of classic games through that and I 
boy, I hope Nintendo has learned that lesson because I think it could be a huge boon to the Switch if they have. Yeah. And again, the the amount that I do think they tried to build out the virtual console on the Wii U indicates to me at least that I, I hope or think that they're on an upward trajectory with that because, again, when things started slowing down on the virtual console on Wii U were when it, frankly, became clear that this thing was not going to sell more units. Right. and. Even then, there are still some pretty impressive games coming out on the virtual console. Um, Pokemon Snap just came out and things like that. Fucking so, yeah. And that's cool to have that archived and out. And Nintendo has a pretty huge catalog, and even a sliver of that is better than anyone else's back catalog. So it's cool to have. Man, the fact that they never made a Pokemon Snap 2 on the Wii U is a crime against that humanity. Worked, like, that's, yeah. like, that is the one that is like the fucking game they had in their history, in the archive of like... This brilliant idea, such a fucking awesome game, Pokemon Snap, that's like they never did anything else with, and then they have a console with the perfect gimmick of that fucking touchpad that you could have used as a camera. It's like, fucking goddammit, Pokemon Snap 2 on the Wii U. I might have bought it if they had made Pokemon Snap 2 on the Wii U and it was good. Seriously, though, and I think maybe Nintendo has a history of underestimating Pokemon in some ways. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, If the Wii U had launched with Pokemon Snap 2 as, like, its big marquee title... I think the history would be very different mm-hmm. because if that could have like showed off that gimmick, you would have had a wide cross section of Nintendo fans flocking to that thing, and a lot of new people who clearly would never have played the original Pokemon Snap excited by that. That would have been a much more effective launch title. Yeah, and they never even made it. So <sighs> Pokemon Snap yeah. Two, if only, if yeah. only. So what I want to do next is talk about some of my favorite games on the Wii U. All right, and I've got a top eight list <laughs> because I couldn't make a top ten. And yes, as a lot of Nintendo fans have noted, the Wii U will definitely go down in history as the Nintendo system for which we all own the fewest games. But some of them are really good. Yeah. So I, I could have made a top ten, but it, the last two would have felt really false to me. Okay. So I did a top eight. Some games you won't see on here that are uh, people love that I just have not played yet. Bayonetta 2. Yeah. Tokyo Mirage Sessions. Um... God, a couple others that I'm forgetting. Did you play Pikmin 3? Pikmin 3. I have Pikmin 3. I'm not a Pikmin guy. But okay. people love that one. So, and maybe one day I'll go back to it more. Um, Did you play Paper Mario on the Virtual Console? Yes. Okay. That was the first N64 one I got. Is I that on this list? Just did this honorable no. mention? It should, no. it should be. Can, it, can I put it on there as an honorable sure. mention? Okay. I do you want, want to say. Do you want me to do my honorable mentions for the Virtual Console? <laughs> yeah, let's really do that. Yeah. Okay. Honorable mention: Paper Mario for the N64. That's a fucking video game. Absolutely. Um, I replayed Super Mario 64 twice on this thing, and because it, it's a really good version That's of that a game. Video game, it's fucking great. Another honorable mention: Pokemon Snap for the N64 sure. on the Wii Virtual Console. That's yes. a fucking video game. Absolutely. Um, Super Metroid. I finally discovered on this. Uh, Metroid Fusion and Metroid Zero Mission, which they finally put out. So awesome. I love those. You know how much I love Metroid. It's because of the Wii U that I got to discover all these games. So love all of that. Um, Fire Emblem, the original GBA one, got to play that for the first time because of this. And I really love how Game Boy Advance games look on the Wii U. It is a beautiful emulation. I Even like the GBA emulation I do on my computer doesn't approach it. It's something they did with that looks fantastic and i have a lot of gba games and i want to get more right now i'm kind of in this limbo of waiting to see what the switch is going to do right, before yeah. i get any more but i will probably keep my wii u around for things like that yeah so. like i've been playing fire emblem heroes i have had an unbelievable urge to break out my game boy advance sp and play that fire emblem so, game do again. it it's so good yeah i probably am so at good. some point 
Yeah, and Sacred Stones, I wound up playing on the 3DS because it was one of the Ambassador games back in the day, but it is also on the Wii U, and it's awesome. Yeah, so. It's not quite as good as the Fire Emblem with Lintus, in my opinion, but... Yeah, but it's really good. It's really like good, yeah. <laughs> but it was like, there's there's something about like the, the straightforwardness of just like chapter, 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 and I like the story of... You like meeting Lindis like like in the like fucking like plains that she lives in and like starting from that really small place and it's not like you're not starting with princes and princesses and kingdoms falling. I thought that was really cool. It felt like Lube and Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Nice. Yeah, lots of good stuff. So any any other virtual console ones I'm thinking of? I don't know. Those are I have others. You know, they also started doing near the end of those Wii virtual console games. Which weren't technically virtual console; they were just straight emulations of Wii software. But it was nice because a lot of like long out of print games, like the Metroid Prime trilogy, yeah. were back for sale digitally, and that was I think cool for a lot of people who might have missed out on those. You know, Mario Galaxy One and Two are archived that way. It's a really neat thing that they started doing that, and I, I only wish they had more of those. Some hard to get ones like the Fire Emblem Wii game, which is like two hundred bucks if you want right, to buy yeah. that now. I'd love to get that for like ten dollars on Wii U. But anyway, so that's honorable mentions. Let's go into the games. Number eight is the one I've played the least of because I just started playing it, but I wanted to play it before this retrospective. Is New Super Mario Bros. U, which was the launch New game. New Super Mario Bros. Me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. New Super Mario Bros. U. Um, this is a really good one. I love the New Super Mario Bros. games in general. Um, you know, the first one for the DS is just, I think, one of Mario's finest hours. It's a phenomenal game. I've always loved the one they did for the Wii because it's the same format generally. Same formula, but the format is tweaked enough that it feels like its own thing, and that's also where the sort of Mario Couch co-op revolution started that has continued throughout this generation and influenced games like the Donkey Kong Country Returns series and Mario 3D World and some of the Yoshi's Woolly World, a lot of these. And it's been a big thing that I've loved about Nintendo games. And Super Mario Bros. U is totally in that lineage. It's very good. I haven't played enough of it to determine where I would kind of rank it with the other new Super Mario Bros. games. But, you know, back in the day, I did get Mario Bros. New Mario Bros. 2, which was the 3DS one, and that is one of the rare Mario games I don't like that much because I think it's just kind of oh. boring. The one for the Wii U is very good. It actually has maybe my favorite desert world in a Mario game, huh. um, which I often don't like desert worlds yeah, in no, Mario yeah. games. This one was very creative, and I, I like saw it. It was World 2, and I'm like, oh, God damn it. And I started playing it, and I really liked it. So this one's good. I played like half of it, and this weekend I got to play a good chunk of it with my brother because this game to me is lives or dies on how fun it is in co-op, and it is a fucking blast in co-op, and it is something I hope they don't lose sight of with the Switch is that that is one of my favorite things Nintendo has been doing over the last 10-ish years, is that couch co-op for, like, in-depth platformers. It's fascinating, and nothing like it has ever existed before, and it's a blast, and it's it was a blast here, too. So that's my number eight. Okay. Number seven is Paper Mario Color Splash. Oh, right, yeah. I totally understand why some people don't like this game, but I will just say again, the writing in this game is fucking phenomenal. The graphics in this game are maybe the best on the Wii U. They are just so... It looks handmade, everything about it. It is like what you remember the original Paper Mario looking like in like your childhood imagination memory. It is it's just a blast of creativity. Yes, the battle system is not that good, and I understand if that kind of kills the game for you. For me, it's like the little price I paid to play through the game, and it was fine. And I've never actually finished this game because it's fucking huge. I put like 40 hours into this and I have a lot left. It's a huge RPG for Paper Mario. That's longer than Paper Mario. I think it probably is. I think Paper Mario is like a 30-hour game. Yeah. But like, 
I don't mind it. Like, I will probably someday go back and play more of this, and I kind of like knowing that there's more left for me to go back to. Um, but what I played of it, God, I love this game. And I think if you, you know, uh, like, you know, if you're so into Paper Mario, like, 1 and 2, that you never want anything mildly different, you won't like this. You'll be offended by it. Yeah, but if you're open to the larger... Staying world, against the history of one of the most underrated RPG series in video game history. Sure. But uh, if you're willing to, to try something else, it's good. Number six is Yoshi's Woolly World. Which, as we're recording this, has just been re-released on the 3DS. Right, yeah. That's why, like, I was really confused for a little bit why everyone was talking about that game again. It took me a second. Oh, okay, it came out. It got re-released. I was like, did everyone just fucking buy this game in January all of a sudden? What's going on? Yeah, so it finally got re-released for the 3DS. Um, And I've actually, the 3DS, they did a demo for it. And I played that demo. And it's really cool if you've never played that game and you have a 3DS. Totally get it. It's it's great. It's a really good platformer. Um, But what made this game, to me was the HD visuals on the Wii U, because like Mario Color Splash, it, it looks like they built everything in this game and just filmed it. Like, it looks like a stop-motion Yoshi game where they made everything out of yarn. It is just a graphical masterclass, in addition to being a really solid Yoshi platformer. You know, they've done a couple of these, like, Yoshi's Island sequels over the years, and this is, I think, the best of them, um, because they did two for the, the, the... one for the DS, one for the 3DS, and the one for the DS is pretty good, the one for the 3DS is not... This is a really good follow-up to that original Yoshi's Island. I never liked the final couple levels in this game, but overall I love it. And it's another one I played. This one I played completely in co-op with my brother. And it was so much fun. I played that over Christmas break right after I graduated. And I'll say that was kind of a rough time for me. I felt like this intense melancholy after I graduated college that I wasn't expecting. Like I did not want to adjust out of that. And Yoshi's Woolly World was like the thing that balanced me out when I was really sad because it's one of those things you look at and it is just concentrated fucking happiness and cuteness to the point that it's like a little too sweet at times, but when you're depressed, it helps. (laughs) So anyway, love Yoshi's Woolly World. It was a very special game and and part of this larger trend of of co-op games that I just loved on the Wii U and that defined that system for me. And something I, I, again, I I really hope they don't leave behind on the Switch because I actually think the Switch is really well positioned for that kind of game. Like, one of the things I hope they do is make games like this where you could maybe just take those two Joy-Cons, right, yeah. give one to each person, and there's no reason you need complex controls for one of these. Yeah, you just need, like, to move, jump, and, like, maybe an action button. Yeah, and it could work great if they do more like this. I think that, because there's no barrier to entry for that, because every Switch, you'll at least have what you need to do a two-player version of that. Yeah. And I'm so excited for that possibility. So I hope they don't lose sight of that. Number five is Super Mario 3D World. Right. And... It's a great Mario game. It's really good. It's a great follow-up to Mario 3D Land, which I think is one of the landmark Mario games. And it's kind of weird that, like, for the for the Wii U, just being a really solid, good 3D Mario game wasn't maybe enough to push it over the edge for some people because this was not Mario 64. This was right. not Mario Galaxy. This was not rewriting the rules because, frankly, the game that did that was Mario 3D Land. It was on the 3DS, and this was a direct follow-up. But it's really inventive. It's got absolutely beautiful music. And the best thing about it, again, is that you could play it in co-op, which makes this the most unique of those 3D or a Wii U co-op games because this one is not a side-scroller, which right. is what Donkey Kong Country and Yoshi and all these other ones were. This is a full you know, 3D Mario game. It's got some side-scrolling elements to it. But again, I played through this whole one with my brother, and I loved it. It is such a, un- such a unique experience, even if the game's structure is just borrowed from that 3DS game. 
this feels kind of unlike any other Mario game, and to me that makes it very special, and I think it's totally worthy of being in that main Mario canon. You know, I, I see people kind of wanting to erase it now that we've got, like, Mario Odyssey on the horizon, yeah. which is a new, like, the next of, like, you know, 64 Sunshine Galaxy, but... I, you know, I'm fine with Mario 3D World. It's really good, and I don't want to dis... It's sometimes when Nintendo is just really good, people want to discount it, and I that annoys me. This is a really, really good Mario game. Maybe it's not a great one, but also, like, it's, in terms of HD Mario, this one's got the goods. It looks amazing at times. It's got that cat suit. Got the cat suit. I love Cat Mario. I think it's hilarious. It's a good power-up. They had some weird... All the Mario power-ups on the Wii U were built around rodents. Have I told you the big power-up in Mario uh, Brothers U? No. It's a flying squirrel suit. It's bizarre. Huh. It's, it's actually a really good power-up. I like it. But it is so weird that the two main Mario games on the system, the power-ups, the special power-ups were <laughs> flying squirrel and cat. The, all you've just made me realize is why the fuck was it the, the raccoon tail always a flying squirrel power-up? Why was that not just always what it was? Because the raccoon tail thing never made any fucking sense. Definitely between Mario 3D Land, which used the Tanuki suit a lot, New Super Mario Bros. U, and Mario 3D World, Mario went through a furry phase in the last generation. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I will. my favorite cosplay I saw at RTX 2015 was uh, this couple that came as Cat Mario and Cat Peach. And they looked hottish. Not hot like in the terms of like oh, they were sexy. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like, like physically their temperature was very high. Because you're in a, a big convention center. Yeah. It's well ventilated, but it's still Austin in the summer. And they're wearing these fucking cat suits. And of course, if you've seen the cat suits in the game, like they're big like felt cat yeah, suits. Yeah, they're like fuzzy. Yeah, it was great cosplay. Like they did a great job on it, but they looked miserable. <laughs> so it was fun. I mean, that's really the best cosplay will make people look miserable. So Yeah, I mean, maybe wait and do that when like you're in a convention in Alaska or something. Exactly. Yeah, maybe not the best one for Austin, Texas. But uh, number four, though, I had to put this one higher because maybe it's not got the like breadth of gameplay to it, but the depth of this one was so surprising for me, and it is the biggest surprise on the Wii U, and that is Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. Okay, yeah, which was I forgot that game came out. Basically, a spinoff of Mario 3D World. Yeah, because there's these little levels in 3D World where you play as Captain Toad, and I really like those. But then they decided to make a full Captain Toad game. And this was, I think, their big game at the end of 2014. Or one of them. The other one was Smash Bros., which we'll talk about in a minute. And I think it came out of nowhere. It was even like a $40 game, not a $60 one. And I love Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. I think it's going to go down as, I think, the cult classic from this console. Hmm. And it's just... It is so unique. Nintendo's never made a game like it. It is this little platform puzzle adventure where you play as Toad... It is longer than its $40 price point would tell you, I think, because it's got, like, three full campaigns in it, basically, and they're all really good. And I remember that Christmas, that, that just being the game I played over that Christmas holiday, that and Smash Bros., and just loving it. And, and I think I still have some levels to play, because it was pretty long, and I think it's a really special game, and I am still mad that I never got a Captain Toad amiibo, because that thing <laughs> sold out immediately, and I love Captain Toad. I can't wait for the Captain Toad sequel on the Switch. I'm sure they're going to... I think that's their number one priority, is they're going to, like, after Zelda comes out, they just shift everyone. And it's like, we have to make Captain Toad right now. Big open world Captain Toad. <laughs> that would be great. Captain, to Captain Toad can hijack a car. Yeah. Fuck a prostitute. I, that wasn't where I was going with it, but sure. Okay. Anyway. That's, that's just that's what Mario is doing in New Donk City. It is. It is indeed. All right. Uh, number three... 
is Super Mario Maker. Yeah. Going to go down in history, I think, is one of the most unique Wii U titles and one of the most essential. Um, sort of, I think, if I were to say, like, empirically what I think the most important Wii U game is, this one's number one. Yeah. I just, there's two others I like more. But Mario Maker is such a special game, and I feel like in the arc of Mario history, if you look at the mainline 3D Mario games, you know, from... Or not mainline 3D, just the mainline Mario games from the NES, Super NES, N64, all those eras, you see this extension where Mario games get more and more, I think reflexive where they are they start around the time of galaxy like commenting on the nature of physics in a platformer in that galaxy i do think and galaxy 2 especially are kind of weirdly reflexive essays on how these things work in 3d environments and in platformers and you have that and then you get to like mario 3d land which completely blows the hinges off that where it is a actual 3d stereoscopic game where you have to have the depth effect on to know what you're doing and it really interrogates that idea of how depth and, and space works. And, you know, 3D World kind of does a similar thing. And then you come all the way around to Mario Maker, where it is a platformer where you make the levels yourself. Yeah. And it fully gives you those tools. And it feels like this very natural extension of where Mario had been headed, where it keeps kind of thinking about, on its own, what makes this series special. And then it allows you to explore that in a way no game has ever let you explore that kind of thing. You know, even a, a little big planet or a Minecraft or something like that. It's a fundamentally different yeah, kind different of thing. Things. You yeah. know, you're not... Or Forge and Halo. This is different because you are building, like, Mario games yourself. And the tool set was so rich and so unique. This is and the just other... completely intuitive. Like, it is, the, it is the game I saw on the Wii U that was like, okay, that's why you need this thing. That's why you need the gamepad. Like, you cannot do... I mean, you can do Mario Maker without the fucking TV. You can't do it without the gamepad. Yes, it's a really special thing. And being able to make those on the gamepad and then throw them up on the TV and play through them was just such a joy. And that they had those four skins of original Mario Bros, Mario 3, Mario World, and new Super Mario Bros. And just like making a course and playing it through those four styles. And kind of, because they also adapted the physics between those four styles. Yeah. It's just incredibly intuitive and special. And it's one of those games I always wish I had more time to play because I think if I gave myself over to it, that would be like my MMO. That's the thing like, right, I yeah. would just go back and play a lot of. And it's worth playing a lot of. It is so special. And it created this big online community, which I was never a part of. But clearly to a lot of people, it was a really special part of their gaming lives over the last few years. And, you know, there's just never been anything like Mario Maker. And I think it's going to continue to kind of live in infamy, kind of like Mario Paint did back in the day right, or something. Yeah, yeah like, like Super Mario Maker is the, like the one Wii U game I can really point at that felt like it made a cultural impact larger than just the people who played the game and just like the people who bought Wii U's. Like, you know, even even if like Super Mario 3D World is a great game and like I take I like admit that like I I haven't played it but like I'll assume that that's totally true. It didn't like penetrate no. outside of that bubble. Like even like like Mario Kart for the Wii U and Super Smash Brothers for the Wii U like probably really great games, but nothing about them penetrated outside of that space. And Super Mario Maker felt like when that game came out and it broke big and it like it felt like it penetrated that space and just like all of a sudden it was a part of my life just like being on YouTube, you couldn't avoid seeing like random videos of people playing Super Mario Maker, like like listening to podcasts and stuff like that. Even if you did not own a Wii U, you were hearing about that game all the time, which is what it felt like, you know, back in the day when exclusive console exclusives were really huge things. It was like even if you didn't have a PlayStation Two, you heard people talking about Metal Gear Solid, or you heard people talking about Final Fantasy X. Like you heard people talking about the big exclusives. You heard if you didn't have an Xbox, everyone knew that Halo was a big deal and it was making waves. Super Mario Maker is like the one Wii U game that I felt like did that. 
Absolutely. And it is, yeah, it is the number one Wii U game in a lot of metrics. Yeah. Uh, my number two and one, which I'm going to transition into now, are there because I'd be so lying if I didn't put them as my numbers two and yeah. one because they are the two games I've played the most on my Wii U and I will continue to play a shit ton of, in part because one of them is getting ported to the Switch. Yeah. And that my number two is Mario Kart 8. I don't even necessarily think of myself as that big a Mario Kart fan. I like them a lot, but I've often kind of run hot and cold on them in some ways. Right. Mario Kart 8 is just kind of a perfect Mario Kart game. It, I think going to HD and having that level of visual ingenuity where it can look that beautiful, be that colorful, run at a smooth 60 frames per second, even if you're in split screen, Mario Kart was always born to look like that and just be a visual auditory feast. And Mario Kart 8 finally got to be that. That thing the series I think always wanted to be. Yeah. But it also, it just moves smoothly. It is the fastest Mario Kart game, especially once they added that 200 cc's. It's got killer DLC. The DLC for Mario Kart 8 was just fantastic. And those are still probably my favorite courses to play are some of their DLC ones. Which, that's the mark of good DLC. Yeah. Like a good map pack in Halo or something. Um, but also, again, this is one of the two games by default when I'm hanging out with my brother... We play. It's Mario Kart 8 and my number one game, which I'll talk about in a second. And it's just solid. It's so good. Is it as innovative as most of the other games I just did on this countdown? No. But it's it's iterative, you know. But it's a really good iteration on that. It is the best Mario Kart game. It is the smoothest, cleanest, most fun to play. And I think the, it's, it's, there's no coincidence that they are making that one of the first Nintendo Switch games. Because even if it's sold a lot, not enough people have played this. This is a party game in the vein of the best, you know, and most popular GameCube and Wii games from back in the day. And I think it's fantastic, and I've played so much of it, and it has to be my number two for that reason. Okay. Yeah. Well, it is, I think it's a huge mystery. What could possibly be number one if, like, we already said Super Mario Maker, we already said Mario Kart, I thought that was, that's all the games that came out on the Wii U, Jonathan. Batman Arkham City Armored Edition. I, we all knew it. It's like it was the one thing that Batman Arkham City always needed was a shit frame rate and like a meter that built up when you were doing well in the combat that you could press a button that made you do better in the combat. Yep. I, it's just, it is the definitive way to play Batman. I think the choppy frame rate speaks to the shattered psyche of Bruce Wayne. I mean, it, it really just makes the experience cinematic in a way that like playing the game at 24 frames per second sort of reveals, I think, the, the real Nolan-esque universe they were going for. It makes me think of that time I went to see a revival screening of Tim Burton's Batman and like the film print broke. And that's yeah. the way to see that movie. Mm -hmm, exactly. And I mean, the one thing that Batman was always missing was like really big cumbersome armor all over him. The same thing with Catwoman. Like when I look at Catwoman, I'm like, the one thing this lady needs is a suit of big, like clumsy armor to just like be on her at all times. And like, that's what makes her like lithe and cat-like because all cats, as we know, have protective chitinous shells around them at all times. My actual number one is Super Smash Brothers for Wii U. Armored Edition. <laughs> Armored Edition. I love this game so much. You guys have heard me talk about it. And maybe not as much as you... I, I probably should. Because I have probably put over 100 hours into this game. Yeah, I remember when you first started playing this game. And like the, the hour counts you were bringing in like every week were kind of unsettling. That was the 3DS also. Because yes. my 3DS, it's still my most played 3DS game at like yeah. 80 plus hours. And I've got probably even more now on the Wii U. Because I played it so much in, in you know co-op with my brother and stuff. But... I think it's almost a cliche to say this, but I really do think it's just the best game on the Wii U as a video game. It is the best version of Smash Brothers. You know, we can all be nostalgic for Melee as long as we want. At the end of the day, that is like a 15-year-old game. Yeah. 
It doesn't hold up in the same way I think some people think it does who are not competitive gamers. But what I've always said about Smash Bros. for Wii U is that it plays the way you remember Melee feet playing, with some really solid improvements, but also just having that kind of smoothness and speed that you can only get from having a modern, like, HD, really beautiful 60 frame per second game like that. And that benefits, you know, that is such a huge part of it. It has so many great stages. The character roster in this game is just fucking insane. And the DLC in this was the highlight of the Wii U for me was following that DLC as it came out. And they added crazy characters like Ryu and yeah. Cloud and Bayonetta and some of those accompanying stages. And they got some of the old N64 stages out. It was just such a blast. There are some things about Smash Bros. for Wii U that don't work. I don't like the single player mode in this one, which is like Smash Tour. It's not very good. And I don't think their classic mode where you like rise up through the ranks is as clean as like the one on the 3DS, say. But none of that really matters at the end of the day with Smash Bros. Because yeah. what you want it for is just your basic, you know, co-op or versus play. And you not only have that, but you have that eight-player Smash, which is so fun. I've only actually had eight people in the room and play it that way a couple of times. But it is chaos. And even just doing that with, like, two people and a bunch of computers is so much fun. And it's something that you can only do with, like, this HD system and all that. It is a great, great game, and I love Smash Brothers so much, and this has become my favorite Smash Brothers game. And for a while, Smash Brothers kind of felt like it was in the wilderness, because the one for the Wii, Brawl, is a great game, but it wasn't, it didn't feel as tight and good yeah, as it, Melee did. It just made some weird decisions in terms of, like, gameplay stuff. It, yeah. That, like, yeah, Brawl, it was like, it, was, it felt good at first, and then the more you played it, the more you realized, like, I just want to go back to playing Melee. Especially because we were all playing that on the Wii... Yeah. And on the Wii, you already just played Brawl with the GameCube controller. And at that point, you're like, well, I'll just put in Melee. Yeah, then some poor fool gets stuck with playing with the fucking Wiimote and Nunchuck. Because yes. it's like, we didn't have four GameCube controllers. You're like, I don't even know how to do this. This is a, a terrible way to play this video game. Yeah. Like, this game was clearly just meant to be played with the fucking GameCube controller. And luckily, the Wii U, you have real game controllers to play yeah, with. I mean, that, that's, they re, like, remade the GameCube controller and put it back out for this game. God, I forgot. I've that's like done. that's how big of a deal that was. Yep, but no, it is it is great. I love the 3DS version. Similarly, they are you know pretty much one game over two platforms. But the 3DS game would not be my favorite 3DS game. This is definitely my favorite Wii U game. You know, if I were to redo my top ten video games of all time list, Smash Bros. for 3DS and Wii U is on there as a shoe in. Hmm. So it has to be number one on my Wii U list. Great game, and again. Not something I would say, oh, you were really missing out this generation if you didn't, you know, binge uh, Smash Bros. on the Wii U. Right. But for me personally, I'm so glad it has been and will continue to be part of my gaming life because it's just essential. Can I say my main disappointment with Smash Brothers for the Wii U? What? Is it's called Smash Brothers yeah. for the Wii U. Like, what the fuck is with that title? It's like, bad. seriously? And the 3DS one. They're yeah. It's yeah. sad. Again, we, we suggested way back in the day Super Smash Brothers Roughhousing and Super Smash Brothers Tussle. Yeah. And they never did that. It's I mean there are other words you could go for too, but those were I think the two best. And it's just it's it, you know, normally Nintendo I think is pretty good about naming shit and they just really dropped the ball on that one. It was, it was profoundly disappointing for me. Profoundly disappointing. Luckily yeah. the game is great enough to, to paper over it a little bit. Sure. Alright. So that is the Wii U. That's my little mini retrospective. A lot of games I really love, and, and I hope, if nothing else, I hope Nintendo learns some important lessons going on to the Switch, because there's a lot I think you can learn from the successes and failures of the Wii U, and I hope all of that is brought to me. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think the number one thing that they started doing in the Wii U era 
that they need to bring forward to the Switch era is to have weird random crossovers with like anime properties like they did with Squid Girl and Splatoon and Shitoge from Nisekoi as a like costume mushroom thing in Super Mario Maker. Oh, right. I yeah. forgot about that. Uh-huh. Right. Or... I didn't even know Squid Girl was in Splatoon. Squid Girl, they did a Squid Girl DLC for Splatoon. That's amazing. And then also, did they... What car was it? Like a Honda that had DLC yep. for Mario Kart 8? Obviously, that's not quite the same thing as Nisekoi, but... Like, the Wii U, like, the, when Nintendo was backed into a corner because nobody was buying the Wii U, that just made them go, like, fuck it, we'll just do, we, like, they've never seemed like a company that would ever be open to doing that shit, and they're just like, we'll do weird promotional crossovers with all this random shit, sure, we'll put Ryu in Super Smash Brothers. why the fuck not? It was a fun time. Yeah. It was, it was, the, it was in many ways, it was the best of times and the worst of times. I, I'm just waiting for Chitoge to be a fully playable character in Super Smash Brothers on the Switch. <laughs> It'll be great. All right, I'm getting a little tired, so I'm going to do this last part really quick. Okay. 3DS, I'm not going to do my full retrospective for, but I made a top 10 list, and I know you guys want to hear it. So sure, yeah. I'll just go ahead and go through it really quick to kind of tie a little bow on the last, like, five years of Nintendo gaming. What have been my favorite things? Y'all know how much I love the 3DS. Not a perfect system, but damn, is it an awesome one. And... Here are my top 10 games on the 3DS so far. Remembering that there are many more 3DS games I've missed and would still want to yeah. play someday. Yeah, you cannot do that list of like, this is the three or four games that came out for this console that people like that I haven't played yet. No, there are a ton for the 3DS I'd love to play one day, including ones you would think I had already played, like Luigi's Mansion Dark Moon. I haven't played that. So Fuck, that's right. They I don't have that. Luigi's Mansion, yeah. huh? So anyway, um, here are my 10. Number 10 is kind of a cheat. Most of the time I don't allow remakes on this thing. But I think this one makes sense, and that is The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask okay. for 3DS. And I think this one is justifiable of all like portable remakes or HD remakes because Majora's Mask needed it. it needed, oh, yes, yes. It needed to kind of be rescued from obscurity in history because this is a game that had been growing in critical appreciation over the years, but always lived in the shadow of Ocarina of Time. Frankly, didn't run that well on the Nintendo 64 and never emulated well in other scenarios. And so, this remake for the 3DS, which not only you know gave it this fresh coat of paint and made it look absurdly beautiful, also added in things that that game always needed, like having an actual like quest notebook structure and fixing some camera issues. And actually, on the 3DS, that has a free camera if you have the new 3DS and things like that. And so, Majora's Mask sort of got to have this big critical reevaluation because of the 3DS. And I love that game. I'm not the kind of person who's going to go out and try to claim it is a better game than Ocarina of Time. Because it's not. It's not. But I do understand the thing of, like, I find it a more interesting game. Because in some ways it is. As I've always said, it is. if David Lynch, for some reason, directed a Legend of Zelda game, it would look an awful lot like Majora's Mask. And I love that about it. It still has some things that are rough around the edges. I think the final dungeon you do is really awkward and not so good in some ways. But so much of that game is so special. It does things that no other game has ever done. And I think its re-release on the Nintendo 3DS kind of revealed how ahead of its time that game was back in the day in having this structure of this repeating time travel loop that frankly has never even been attempted to be repeated because it is so singular. Yeah. And I think one of the great things, the joys of the 3DS was getting to experience it that way. I also played Ocarina of Time on the 3DS the first time all the way through. But I could have played Ocarina of Time any number of ways before yeah. then. I think the 3DS version is clearly the best because they got to improve it in some ways. You know, the, the water temple and the boots and things like that. But it didn't need to be rescued the same way Majora's Mask needed it. And right. so it makes the list for me. Yeah, I think that is 
a justifiable reason. Okay. Number nine is Animal Crossing New Leaf. Okay. Which I take for granted, and I totally forgot until I was like, what other game do I want to put on here? I'm like, oh, right, I have that. I've played it. I love it. That's a really good Animal Crossing game. It works great on the 3DS. That's, you know, that's just, that game was kind of made to be portable. Yeah. Although I still think it's weird. I think it's not that weird, but it is, it's another game that somehow never had a Wii U game. You know, like the Wii U never had oh, a, right, a yeah. new Zelda, never had a new Animal Crossing, all these things. It's a strange thing about the Wii U, but the, we had one for the 3DS and New Leaf. You know, it even recently just got that, like, like Welcome Amiibo update that yeah. added all this new yeah. stuff into it. So it's still going strong, and it's one of those games I wish I had more time to play because I really like it. So that's that one. Number eight is Fire Emblem Fates, which you've which, heard about. Which one? All of them together. Okay. Uh, if I had to pick one, it's Conquest. That's the one I like the most. But I'm just saying overall Fire Emblem Fates. I did a whole spiel about this on my top ten games of 2016. You can listen to it there. It's Fire Emblem. It's not the best Fire Emblem, but it's better than most things. So, there you go. Number seven is Kirby Planet Robobot. Also right, from yes. my top ten games of 2016. I really love Kirby Planet Robobot. It's fun. Number six is Persona Q, Shadow of the Labyrinth. Yeah. Which is a goddamn great game. It's just a cool Persona game. It's got so much good story stuff in it. Music's beautiful. It's a little too long, but I think it overall meshes with the Etrian Odyssey game structure so phenomenally that I really someday want to play an Etrian Odyssey game. And I know a new one is coming out for the 3DS later this year, and I think I'm probably going to have to jump in with that because it's such an addictive structure, and it worked with Persona so well. And Persona Q, my clock on that is still, it is longer than either of my two playthroughs of Persona 4 or Persona 3. Yeah. So it is a long game, and it is a great game, and it was so cool that we got that for the 3DS, and yeah, I love playing Persona, Persona Q. Hell of a soundtrack. Hell of a soundtrack. Number five is Pokemon X and Y. Um, probably the best Pokemon games in a lot of ways since the original Game Boy ones, you know, like Red and Blue and Gold and Silver. Definitely the best since those, and arguably just, you could make the argument the best overall, because they are so fleshed out, they have a much better story than you come to expect from Pokemon, the world is so immersive, the music is so great, it made some really big quality of life improvements that Pokemon had always needed, like what they did with the experience share, and at a time when I was feeling pretty cynical on Pokemon, and wasn't sure if I was even going to play these, X and Y really, or Y is the one I played, really took me, and... I fell in love with those games. And I am not... I know a lot of people like... The, I think the critical analysis has generally been people like Sun and Moon more. I'm not on that camp. I found Sun and Moon very boring. But I would happily go back and play more X and Y in a heartbeat. Those are great Pokemon games. So, cool. got that. Number four, Smash Bros. for 3DS. Take everything I said about the Wii U. It's almost as good on the 3DS. It's just a little more awkward to control. But when you're on your own and you just got to play some 3DS Smash Bros., hey, there are worse things you could do with your time. And that is... Still one of the most technically impressive games on the 3DS because it runs at that smooth 60 frames, looks fucking gorgeous, and has pretty much the same all the same roster of characters and most of the same stages. It's a blast, and I've put like 90 hours into it. So, number three is Bravely Default. Right, yeah. And one of my favorite game soundtracks of all time. One of the best Final Fantasy games of the, of the millennium, yeah. even though it's not called Final Fantasy. And uh, just a really cool special game. I never was able to get into Bravely Second. But I still would recommend Bravely Default in a heartbeat. It's it's a hell of a thing. Cool. Number two, Mario 3D Land. Really tough to pick between my number two and one here. But Mario 3D Land, you've heard me rave about it before. I think it is one of the smartest, most creative platformers Nintendo has ever made. And frankly doesn't get its due. And it is most important as the game that fully justified 
and continues to justify the 3D effect on the 3DS, which I love for a lot of different circumstances, but the only game I would say still that you essentially absolutely need to have 3D to play is Mario 3D Land, because there is, I can't even describe how out of body the sensation is of playing that game in 3D and needing that 3D and having that actual depth when making jumps, because it really makes you rethink your entire connection to platformers. It's kind of what I imagine when people talk about good VR games. Right. But, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get to that same kind of place with games that in-depth with VR. Who knows? But it was a hell of a thing here. And Mario 3D Land is one of the best Mario games. Cool. So, and number one is Fire Emblem Awakening. Obviously, yes. Holy shit. Holy shit, Fire Emblem Awakening. I've talked about it before. I've played it through twice. It is incredible. And, you know, it might not even be my favorite Fire Emblem game from, like, just a straight gameplay sense. Like, I actually think some of the maps and stuff... I love the best on like the original GBA game. That game has just such a solid challenge to it. But Awakening is consistently creative with its map and level design. And the big innovation was how it does its storytelling. And the way you have that marriage system of putting these characters together. And that link between what you do in the battlefield. And what you do out in kind of the world of the game. With these conversations you get between your squad mates. It's kind of like the innovation in Persona 3 of social links. Linking the outside world to the dungeon world. It is I think that same level of like intelligent game design. And Fire Emblem Awakening is another one of my top ten games of all time, probably. I fucking love it. So, and with that, I have counted down my, this generation in Nintendo for me. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to how it starts off next time with the Switch. Yeah, for me, like, the three games on the 3DS that, like, make me really want to have a 3DS, if I had, like, the, the time to actually reasonably play these games, are Persona Q, Pokemon X, and Fire Emblem Awakening. Those are, like, the three that when, like, I hear people talking about that game or, like, I see something written about it online, I, I go and check, like, what price I could get a used 3DS hat, and I'm like, I can't do this. It would be fucking stupid for me to buy this because there's no way I have time to play fucking any of these games. Yeah. But the 3DS is very much not dead. We got another Fire nope. Emblem to play yeah. this year. Got that Etrian Odyssey. Atlas still loves this thing, so... Be interesting to see what the future holds, but you know, I've been thinking a lot about this generation of Nintendo for me, which started right before I graduated high school and continues now, or yeah, it continues to today. And the Switch is about to come out, and you know, the first Nintendo console I've bought on launch since the 3DS, and uh, it's exciting. Certainly, it's got a better launch title in Breath of the Wild than either the 3DS or the Wii U did back in the day. Yeah, even even if it is cross platform, like. It, it is a that is what you want for like a game of like that is going to make people excited in a way that Mario Kart 8 does not like get people fucking pumped you know yeah I mean I'm so excited but yeah. that's my little Nintendo topic I hope you guys enjoyed that sometimes we yeah. don't get to pander to our Nintendo fans in the audience as much as we probably want so maybe we will when the Switch comes out who knows oh we'll definitely talk about yeah. it a lot oh yeah well, yeah <laughs> yeah because again that's like the rare co- home console that you're not getting it at launch but I can easily bring it over and show it to you yeah. and have it like on the podcast, and that'll be a fun thing to do with it. So that's it for this week. Um, we will come back next week and probably talk about Gravity Rush 2 with spoilers and more Yakuza 0. Definitely more Yakuza 0. Hopefully some Digimon World, because it's been too long since we did a good Digimon yeah. talk. And this time I get to be the crazy person describing a Digimon game. I'm, I'm definitely excited for that. But more than anything else, I, I really need to get back to Yakuza 0. Because, Jonathan, I there's a... There's a character in that game that's voiced by Miyuki Sawashiro, and she's oh. a major. She's a major. I have to. I have to play more of that game. So we have to stop this podcast. <laughs>